but you asked me how life was and i said good and it's like one of those very uh serendipitous fortuitous events happened um recently at least in, in my from my perspective churches is a band that i like a lot oh i sent you some of their music yeah i saw oh, keep going i saw adrian post something yeah yeah and so um one of my friends like six months ago texted me like hey there's a church's concert upcoming uh, in case you missed it and i was like oh i did miss it and then i forgot about it again and then the other day i was at work and my boss well the owner of the place that i work at offered me two free tickets that she had bought to the mm-hmm. church's concert and since she's like rich they were front row seats that nice. she said she paid five hundred dollars for mm. and she already offered them to several of my other coworkers, and everybody for some reason turned them down so there you were and i was like say yes yeah and then it's like that that very day that the the concert was were you waiting this is one of my like top five favorite bands yeah neat well that's a cool story and then yeah when i was at the concert is the closest i've ever been to like the stage it's like if i would have reached out my hand i probably could have grabbed her leg did you no (laughs) what's the there wasn't even any bouncers it was weird it was was riverside theater milwaukee riverside for those uh people listening from uh the philippines (laughs) apparently eight percent of my listeners are in the philippines really yeah (laughs) that's pretty cool which is weird but i mean yeah thank you for listening welcome um (laughs) yeah but you you haven't been there no i have yeah oh okay i don't think that's why because i don't know how that would be you know yeah come around am i this will reflect my ignorance of geography is that like indonesia area roughly in that same yeah, part it's of, it's kind like of part of the world. a couple thousand islands north of Australia. Okay. Anyway, keep going. Um, but yeah, it was extremely close, like three feet away from Lauren Mayberry, who was the singer of Churches. And it was a really cool, really great experience. And that just happened? That just happened t- two days ago. Cool. Two nights ago. Did she, or the band as a whole, perform well? Yeah, Did yeah. Did they exceed your expectations, meet them? Well, I've actually seen them live before. Okay. So I've got a lot of bands that I've like want to go see or have seen because they're like my favorite ones. And some of them, like Angels and Airwaves, I love Angels and Airwaves so much. I saw them in concert once and I didn't think their their live performance was nearly as good as their album recordings. Oh, that's disappointing. <laughs> and it might have been, I don't know if it was necessarily their fault or, or whatnot. It seemed like the levels that the, the like a volume that all the things were at mm. were off. Mm. So like... There were elements that were really loud compared to others, and it didn't. It sounded different mm-hmm. from what I'm used to or expecting. Amazing what a difference that can make. Yeah, so it it just kind of sounded off, especially for them. Maybe every music act is like this, but when what's coming to mind for them is they have a very specific sound to me. Yeah. So if those elements aren't meshing well, yeah. it's like you're not even listening to the same. Yeah, band. and also Tom DeLonge, he's got a really uh, noticeable voice accent accent kind, kind, kind of, of yeah. too <laughs> yeah. yeah um but he's honestly not a good singer so like it's fine in the albums because i don't know that's like under ideal situ- yeah. like situation maybe yeah. there's probably voice editing in there but and when he performs live like he's kind of straining <laughs> a little bit and i've seen blink 182 perform too went back when tom DeLonge was part of the band and even the- okay i saw blink 182 in like 2015 or something um or 14 13 whatever back before they finally broke up with Tom DeLonge and um, it was Mark Hoppus, Travis Barker and Tom DeLonge. And I, I feel like I could tell the whole time during the performance that 
Tom DeLonge was like really drunk mm. and Travis Barker, it seemed like he's the drummer. He was like having to keep Tom DeLonge on t- in time. And like Tom DeLonge kept on getting like off tempo, mm. like for a few moments and like slurring words and stuff. So I don't know what was happening, but he was definitely the worst performer. I think he's a great musician, but he's yeah. not a very great performer from what I've personally yeah. seen. I think a lot of musicians are like that. That, you know, when they get in the studio versus when they perform live, it's just a totally different thing, which I can understand. But people talk about how much they love going to see live music. And it is true if you go see a good show that it can be life changing. But at the same time, I don't know, there is just something I like about sitting in my room in the dark by myself, listening to music, hearing it how they intended for us to hear it. But... It's like the most curated version of the yeah. of the sound. Yeah. The most. Yeah. It's the they're at perfect way that they wanted it to be. Yeah. At least for most people, not in the case of Taylor Swift, I guess. Well. Because she has to re-release her own album. Her. her but you way. know why, right? Like it's not like she's just doing it because. No, I don't really know. Why. Oh, okay. She has a producer that. Well, the company. This is my limited understanding of it, or basic understanding, is that the company that owned her music, because most musicians don't own their own music, which yeah, is like funny weird. to me. But anyway, the company that owned her music, I think, was being sold or bought by some other person or it was, I don't know how this works in the music industry, but her her records were going to become available to be purchased and she wanted to buy her own so oh, she could have it. Yeah. But Scooter Braun, the guy that ended up taking over the company, like didn't let her or yeah. bought them instead of her. So now, instead of not having her own music she's like well screw everyone i want i want to be able to own my own music so she's just re-recording them and oh making okay i see so that's why but the thing that i kind of like that she's doing i wonder if it'll start a thing now is that she's re-recording the songs that were already released but now she's also like going back into the vault i think is what she's calling it and being like if i could have released the album in all of the I don't know. And it's entirety at the time. Like this is like, so there's all these extra songs that she wrote at the time that is now included or that are now included. Extra songs are the songs that were on there in the past, like red. Are they different? The ones Uh, she recorded? Did she just record them the same way? I mean, you can tell that it's, it's different because she's older, but um, for the most part, I think they're produced similarly. You you can tell there's a little bit of differences. Cause I saw like on, spotify or whatever it's like red taylor's version i didn't yeah. listen to it but i was like yeah I, I assumed that meant that she remixed or changed a lot of the songs to yeah it, i mean it, from the ones i've heard they sound fairly similar but i know the one that is having its big pop culture moment right now is the all too well because oh, yeah. now there's like a 10 minute version and she created yeah, a short film with it which has been funny like i really liked that song and i liked it back when it came out and that was my favorite one from the album and now it's becoming this huge thing, which is fine, but it's supposedly about Jake Gyllenhaal. And I just feel like, like, I don't know if he's probably fine. Maybe he doesn't care, but it's like all these years later and he's getting <laughs> pummeled again. Oh yeah. Isn't like, oh, is there like a statute of limitations for being a shitty boyfriend? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Not, <laughs> not all for these Taylor No, I guess not. But is that just part of life? It's like, well, if you treated someone badly or at least from their point of view, you just have to deal with the consequences. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know. They say like if you go around in life thinking that everyone else is the asshole, it's probably you that's the asshole. What's and the I feel com- like Taylor Swift has so many horrible boyfriends. Like, is yeah. she just a horrible girlfriend? Well, or is she just extremely unlucky? If you ever date her 
and let me know. <laughs> yeah, I will. Although I think she's been with the guy, not that I care about this at all, but I think she's been with the guy that she's been with for oh. a while now. So it was just Jake Hill. Maybe. Who knows? And that's the thing is like, like any story, any song, it's just her side of it. And that yeah. doesn't mean that that wasn't her experience, but. Right. And it know, doesn't necessarily mean Jake Gyllenhaal is a bad boyfriend. Maybe it's just they had, they were a bad pairing together. Right. Yeah. Maybe. I, I, don't, I have no idea. Uh, anyway. <laughs> is that's... All Too Well, the 10 minute version, is that like extra verses or something? Yeah. Oh, okay. There actually is more to that. It's one. not just on a loop. For no. <laughs> for two, an two extra times. five minutes. Yeah. No. And for all of the, I think, what are her fans called? Swifties? Because like every, every, every artist has like a fan <laughs> yeah, name. Yeah, the Beliebers. Yeah. Swifties. Yeah. I mean, that sounds Which is fine. catchy, I guess. But uh, I think they are having a very nice time right now. Just because there are all these like little details about the relationship that are now being revealed. That we're always speculated about. Like, what did he do? And now, now they're knowing. So one of the verses like Jake Gyllenhaal... Fucked me with a toothbrush. I don't. I don't think that one made the cut. Maybe that's in the next. <laughs> that's in the twelve-minute version. version. Yeah. 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 No, I think he. Well, she. They were still are, I guess, far apart in age. Yeah. So I think that was part of it, and uh, I think he didn't show up to her birthday party, <laughs> which I don't know. That's... I was at. I wasn't there, but you know, when you're that. I think she was turning 21. It probably is a really big deal at the time. I guess it would be no matter what age if you were dating someone and it's like they didn't yeah. show up. Or at least if maybe you were expecting them. Didn't expect to be bringing up Taylor Swift, <laughs> but here we are. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I didn't even say. Well, now I'll say. Uh, welcome to the Regular People Podcast. I'm Wade Allen. And today I'm joined by Brian Orr for the third time. Again. Yeah. A recurrence guest. Um, yeah. I, I, we have no idea what we're going to be talking about. It'll be random things. We did provide lists, prepare lists of topic ideas, but I think it's just going to be an eclectic conversation. Did you say that there were things that you were ruminating on? Yeah, there were. But I'll continue talking about music for a few minutes. Yeah. Because, yeah, there's the, the side of the performers who aren't very good live compared to their audio recordings, such as Angels and Airwaves. However, Blink-182 themselves, post Tom DeLong, still, they're very good live. But uh, the other side of that, like the performers that I think are even better live than the recording. When I saw Atlas Genius at Summerfest in Milwaukee, apparently considered the world's biggest music festival but I'd, I'd like to know what that means called by them yeah is it just Summerfest saying we're the best yeah like you know world's greatest yeah, does copy. anybody fact check that and even if they did are they obligated to take that down for any reason right. i've always wondered that too i'm like really milwaukee is the biggest one in the world i know and, and I, I mean like, maybe like, it is but i wonder what that means that could mean so many things like yeah. is it the amount of performers is it the amount of people who attend is it the yeah. amount of days it runs for maybe it's a combination is it the amount it's of like revenue it the, makes we have the most performers in the given amount of time maybe it's something like that yeah, but i'd I, like them to at least say what they mean because it's yeah because as far as attendance goes because you think like Lollapalooza, that's Lollapalooza, like, like glass coachella like i see some of the crowd sizes for those i'm like there's yeah. no way that Summerfest is like warped to at least at one time, maybe that doesn't count who knows maybe we can look that up what the heck does that actually mean yeah but anyway i saw atlas genius at Summerfest years back and i liked them um i listened to their album and i thought it was pretty good but when i saw them in concert one of their songs, I don't remember which one, 
they just went off on like a 30 minute at least it felt like 30 minute <laughs> instrumental like jazz just huh. improv basically yeah. and it was amazing like mm-hmm. They were just like really like grooving mm-hmm. and doing a great job. And I don't know if it was actually improvisational or not. It might have been planned. But even still, it's not on the album. Mm-hmm. The guy wasn't even singing. They were all just playing their instruments, getting really into the song. So what was the singer doing? Just bobbing his head? I don't remember if he also <laughs> plays instruments. Oh, okay. He might have picked up a guitar during that If time. I was a singer, I would still do this anyway. Or not even be a singer. I've always joked that one of my career paths should have just been like a tambourine player for a band. And that's <laughs> yeah. it. Like just, just the only instrument. Just there. be the one in the back that like... Yeah. <laughs> I would have done that if I was him. Just grabbed a tambourine. And yeah, you could be part of one of those 12-person bands where like eight of them are not even relevant. <laughs> yes. Um, also, Owl City was really great in concert. I agree. I saw them in Milwaukee. Yeah, I saw them years back. Saw them him. A while ago. I mean, them, him, but him, yeah. really. He was one that I'm glad was good, too, because he would have been one that before I saw him live, I would have suspected wouldn't have been as good yeah. because so much of his music is electronically sounding. Same with like his voice, like there's effects on it and that, but he makes good enough usage of like instruments and bringing in live parts of it that the sound the songs don't necessarily sound exactly the same but the performance is still really good yeah so i enjoyed that i suppose if you're going to have a reputation as a musician you'd rather be better live than on the recording right versus the other way would you i don't know because i feel like more often it's the other way like oh they sounded great on the album but then you saw them live but but it'd be good to have a reputation the other way unless that means that your records suck I feel like more people are likely to hear the recorded stuff than the live stuff. Yeah, but then if they know that, yeah, but if we go see it live, it'll sound really good. I, I guess know. I wonder how much, like what percentage of a musician's money comes from record sales or Spotify listens or whatever versus, versus touring, Yeah, especially and nowadays. Ticket purchases. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't know how that works, especially Cause, now because you can get music for free in so many ways. But. Yeah, I hear about how like YouTube or Spotify, like, per listen you don't get very much at all Mm -hmm. but then it's like if you have millions of listens that probably adds up yeah but then it's like if you weren't making good money off of a tour why would artists be like touring eight months of the year i mean maybe just because they enjoy it love it they love it so much yeah but also you got to figure like it must be making them money Mm -hmm. i'd love to make albums from the studio side i think just for me personally like touring that much would be exhausting yeah but maybe i mean a certain kind of person would probably enjoy it but oh i just i guess it would be fun to go city to city but how much of it are you really experiencing when you go yeah i feel like you're probably not seeing much of the city unless you you could i guess schedule your concert to like every performance is a couple days apart Mm -hmm. so you don't have to be in like the next city the very next day but they never do that it seems like it's just like they're in milwaukee one night and detroit the next night it's like maybe you like experience one restaurant in each city but you're not really experiencing the vibe of the city so you just got to go off of what the audience is like so if you had a shitty audience in las vegas you're like las vegas sucks yeah that's your memory of the whole place yeah Ugh. and i, I wonder about touring because that'd be like physically exhausting too especially for the singer like having to use your vocal cords and like do it loud and like a lot for two hours every single day every single night Mm. you'd have to be constantly just drinking buckets of like lemon honey juice tea and and tea yeah and also i wonder how boring it gets too yeah i've heard that said from artists too that it gets very lonely and monotonous Monotonous you're just just in a bus and then yeah or a plane and you just go from one place to the next but i don't know do you think 
only because artists always say how much like, oh my God, I love my fans. When they go on tour, is it is there that aspect of it too? It's like actually seeing real people yeah. that seem to enjoy what it is that you're doing. Like there's probably some level of satisfaction, not that you're necessarily really interacting with them. Well, I guess you are. I mean, when you're in the same room, there's an energy or an electricity that is kind of mutual, but I don't know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if you're performing live like a play, it definitely feels good to mm-hmm. have the audience cheer and laugh or clap or whatever, sing along to your songs if you're a singer. But then it's like you're doing that all the time. Do you, does that never grow old or is that like an experience that is always satisfying? Because I imagine the satisfaction, like diminishing returns on that. Mm-hmm. After 20 years of performing, like the next night's concert isn't... Mm-hmm all that more exciting you've experienced this for so long so many of your nights have been crowds screaming at you i always wonder too for bands that have been around a long time is there a level of cognitive dissonance from their own perspective of how good they are or do they know it like if they know that they suck but the audience is still like yes like oh but this is just sad because i know i'm not as good but you're just trying to relive the as good as they used to be (laughs) yeah yeah but I mean, I don't know if people are having a good time, who cares? But sometimes I'll just see, especially older rock stars, and there's just something really depressing about them singing the same songs of them being like young yeah. and punks and getting girls. And they're like 80 years old with a huge gut. And it's like, oh, are we really? You know, I was actually, <laughs> I was thinking about the singing about little girls thing. Um, <laughs> in in terms of <laughs> singing about little girls did i okay. say that well you were talking about like <laughs> they're old now and they're still yeah. singing the same songs yes, with the lyrics yeah. about fucking a 17 year old yeah but i noticed that with like the latest angels and airwaves album i really like the album but there's a few songs that i'm like okay the lyrics are still about 17 year old girls which is what the lyrics have always been about but now it's like they're probably dads they are dads yeah like, you're like so, you're like 45 so, uh, and yeah. i get you probably singing about it from like you're putting yourself in the perspective of teenage you when you write mm. these songs, hopefully. Yeah. Or, you know. That... But it still just does enter yeah. that territory of, I mean, it's sad because if that's their job, if that's their career. That's true. And you're probably, your audience might be 17-year-old yeah, and I'm, and I'm and happy girls. that they get to do it, but it, it does just show like how important the zeitgeist of whenever maybe you're first becoming popular is. Yeah. And I found that too, when I'm in the car listening to music with like my parents or anybody that's older or maybe even younger than me now of I can hear a song and like it, but I definitely don't connect to it the same way that they did. And I wonder if oh, it's yeah. just because they were, they associate it with a certain time of their life or have an experience of it that I just don't or if whatever. I don't know. They're just like in tune with it more than I am. And same thing when I try to share music that yeah. I really like with people usually of different ages and it just doesn't hit. And I'm like, Oh, that sucks. Yeah. Which is one of my least favorite things anyway. Showing people when, something when they don't like it as much yes. as you do. Yeah, well, I brought that up to you before. Yeah, it was yeah. shithole island. Yeah. Well anywhere or anything like it, <laughs> yeah. whether it's music, Which movies, videos. Mackinac Island. You find yeah. Those uninitiated. Yeah. The joke is is that that is like my favorite place in the world or one of them. <laughs> but uh well never mind. We don't have to, we don't have to <laughs> we go went there. there. <laughs> Yeah, um, but what you just mentioned about the um, pe- different people connecting differently to the music of different ages, I feel like there's probably a few things contained there. Like one of them is definitely music. You really attach it to the time in your life and the feelings you have of like first listening. Maybe not the exact first time you listened, but like the era in which that song came out and that you were exposed to it a lot. So if it's like 
oh, this song from the 70s was right when I was doing my, you know, senior year. Mm-hmm. And I remember all these experiences from senior year. Yeah. You're going to experience it much differently than like you showing your kid that song. Mm-hmm. Kid might still be like, oh, this is an amazing song, mm-hmm. but they don't have that nostalgic like mm-hmm. reaction to it. And then the other part of that, I think, is each era of music, even if the songs are different, they still have themes in the lyrics and general styles, like the musical sound that like maybe a certain decade or a certain group of years mm-hmm. will inhabit. So that if you listen to any given song from the 80s and you didn't grow up in the 80s, it's not going to hit the same way as it does now. So then if you show your mom a song from three days ago that you really like, you'll like it a lot because you're immersed in all these 2020s sounds, but she's not as much. Yeah, it's interesting that that happens though because... I'm trying to think how to describe it, like the cause and effect thing. I mean, is it that people associate the sounds just because they were that? Or is there some sort of natural selection going on where other music that happened at that time probably sounded different? So why is it that there's a certain group of sounds or certain sound for an era that rises to the top versus any other? Because like... (laughs) Yeah, it's like any given era's music is more diverse than we remember it as. Yeah. Like it's just, yeah. But there are certain ones that rise to the top and then I wonder why... And why it changes, it's interesting to think about, but... I mean, if it's anything like a corollary to natural selection, it's probably at the time that those were the most popular songs, so that they were made in the most popular songs. Oh, sure. But I'm just wondering like, like, why, why that is. Yeah, why those. Why those were better songs. Yeah, that like there was just something else going on in, every, in the world and everybody that that sound or that music just matched the mood most of yeah. versus everything else that was going on. I don't know if this is exactly the same, but it reminded me of it. I was just listening to a linguist talk about the reason that slang kind of comes about. And it's it's that, or at least in part, it's that kids start hearing like language and they don't have the same emotional connection to it as their parents do. So they have to make up their own words. Because like if if right now, what's a word like lit? <laughs> or yeah. like that's fire. Right. So kids are saying that now because older people that say like, oh my God, that was so cool. And then when they're talking about cool and the kid is hearing that and going, that's not, it, it's not capturing the same mood as what I'm feeling. So they have to come up with their own words to describe the actual emotion. Yeah. And that's why the like new slang and new words keep popping up because it's like becoming outdated and outgrown. So kids have to find like their own way of being able to describe maybe the same emotion, but in their own yeah. way, if that makes sense. That might not have been yeah, a good way to describe every, it. Yeah, and every like year you you notice all these new terms that are coming about and probably most of them sound stupid to any given person. Mm-hmm. And then within the next five years, most of those are gone, but maybe one of them sticks. Yeah. Like, so same kind of thing. Like, you know, Bay. Nobody says that. <laughs> Thank God. Two thousand twelve they were. Yeah. But that one didn't didn't last. Maybe lit will last. Maybe. But I don't know. I kinda feel like the word cool is really That one stuck has around. some staying power, yeah. And even even if you're a kid who says like lit, I don't think I say lit. I don't think I've purpose. ever said that once, except in yeah. this conversation. If I say it, I'm being ironic. Yeah. I feel like even people who are trying to make new vernacular, they still say cool. Yeah. So again, for some reason, that one yeah. has stuck around, which is weird too, because like it, the way that we use it doesn't really match the actual way that it. it you know what I'm saying? Like right. if something is. If you're cooling something down, it's, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's, it has nothing to do with the literal meaning. Like of something the word. being awesome. Right. Something being just amazing. 
I yeah, that's something probably at least really hard, but maybe impossible to actually figure out is like why any particular thing achieves popularity, mm-hmm. like a word or a song or a movie. Like it's just something in the air. You could say it's a good movie by like production quality, but there are plenty of other good movies. So why mm-hmm. didn't those ones? Yeah, just some incalculable combination of mm-hmm. things that affects everyone the right way or i don't know in a lot of cases it probably only affects a small few people the right way and they care about it so much that it's kind of it's got that like i try to avoid this um whenever i like for instance go see a movie avoid relying on other people to form my opinions for me but it, that might be what's happening is like you see something you don't really decide if it's good or not until you check if the internet thinks it's good mm. so it's, you only need a small amount of people like a fraction of the society to think it's good and then that fraction convinces everyone else that it's good Mm-hmm. And then it kind of like snowballs. Yeah, I've, I mean, I've seen that happen a lot. And I know, I don't remember exactly when, but I just stopped reading reviews generally, or at least yeah. not until after, because I disagreed with every one of them. Like, if some, if the consensus was that something was going to be really good, I'd go and see it. And I was like, I thought that was <laughs> awful. Yeah. And then the opposite would be true, too. Something would get panned, and I'd go and really have a great experience. And maybe that just means my tastes suck. <laughs> but... I don't know. Or the culture as it is now just isn't great at determining things that are of worth very well. I don't know. Maybe it still is, but yeah, there's certain things that become popular that I hear other people just saying are really great. Right. But like to your point, is it just because they think they're supposed to be saying it's great because some yeah. they've read that somewhere and versus I'm, like, did you even actually see it? Right. <laughs> did you go and actually have a visceral experience of it being good? Or are you just under the impression that oh I should be I should say that this is good because that's what everyone else is. Well, I think it's it's saying. probably that aspect of it is probably at least half subconscious. Or I don't I don't think that many people are parroting things because they feel like they have to. It's probably mm-hmm. just it like seeps into them. Mm-hmm. You know, you read some reviews, you hear some friends talk about how a thing was good, so then you just kind of like automatically assume that it is without mm-hmm. consciously evaluating that. That's a pretty common survival instinct too, wouldn't isn't it? I mean, I would think, I mean, we see it not only with art, but just in terms of like ideas that become popular, yeah. that if you live in a family or you live in a state or an area or a workplace that the general consensus is that one thing is right. right. It can cost you if you go against that, depending on what it is. But yeah, it's like the in-group, out-group thing. You want to, mm-hmm. you want to fit in mm-hmm. with people. It's safer to do that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, millions of years of conditioning and yeah well at least a couple hundred thousand years of human evolution probably gets us to mm-hmm. the point where it's just ingrained into your brain is to try and generally speaking obviously not in every case there's a every person has a thing where they dis- disagree with society but mm-hmm. on average most of the things you think are probably in line with the society that you live in and then it's messed up because what's the best way to organize a society around that? Because it's definitely true that the majority of people can be wrong. Yeah. But who do you go with? Because the one person that might be sounding an alarm about something could also be crazy. Yeah. And it's very dangerous to be the vocal minority, right or wrong. Mm-hmm. For instance, with um, movies, again, it's a easy example. One thing I try to do, not always successful, but I would like to do and do sometimes do, is uh, go see a movie experience it and then after the movie is over i try to like solidify my thoughts on it of like whether i liked it what parts i liked what i didn't like about it and then after that and i get exposed to other people's opinions of it and like online reviews of it and try to uh 
not change mm. my thoughts unless I think like I was wrong about something like I missed some important plot hole or something like that. Do you do anything with the information once you've decided whether you like or don't like anything? Or do you just catalog it and just... I mean, I might tell people okay, like, hey, you should watch this movie because I thought it was really good. And maybe Rotten Tomatoes gives it a 34%, but mm. I thought it was great. Do you hope that you get anything out of it or that other people do? Like it's maybe this is a question for art in general, not just movies, but it is kind of weird when you think about the fact that we just go sit in a room for a couple of hours and stare at a screen and watch things happen. Like it's one of my favorite things ever. Or I love reading books, especially fiction. Yeah. So they're not real. We might have, maybe we've talked about this in a different conversation, but it's like, so what are we getting from experiencing these stories? And at least in part, I think it's that we might get hints of how to be in the world. And obviously you have to be able to abstract or at least subconsciously abstract that because a lot of the stories don't exactly yeah. mirror any of our real lives. But we can either see in art examples of where things go well or where they don't go well, but that can also be useful. So that's maybe at least just the practical element. There is an element of entertainment too. Like it is just exciting to see new things and to be able to channel the empathy and imagine different things but like why like why do why do we enjoy doing that yeah the, the why is always the most difficult question yeah so best avoided anyway no. <laughs> yeah i have no idea but um i was thinking about something similar because yeah there's the there's the argument to be made for like the practicality of it like storytelling teaches you ethics or like it can be a substitute for situations that you don't necessarily find yourself in but you can still learn from yeah well, there's some quote that humans develop the capacity to think so that our thoughts could die and we don't have to. Mm. And I've always liked that idea that, that like good. our imagination exists to run the simulation so that right. we can do it theoretically versus having to actually go and run it and then die if that's yeah, the you, consequence. Yeah, you can test it in your mind. And then a more exciting way or uh, the element of mysterious creativity of being a human is that we then turn these into stories so it's not simply just like a cut and dry scenario it's that we add all these different elements to make it more intriguing i don't know the aspect that i was thinking about this is um you mentioned it uh, for a moment is i was thinking along the lines of if humanity doesn't you know die before this happens but eventually given the assumption that humanity continues to live we will continue to learn more and more things about the universe and there may be may well come a point in history and in, in time where we've learned basically most things maybe not it's maybe impossible to learn everything but you learn so many things about how the world works that the world's reality might become boring or predictable or it it, it now lacks that element of mystery or discovery mm-hmm. to be had you know there's something kind of sad about when the map is complete mm-hmm. kind of thing so i was thinking a large portion of what fiction does for us is it allows us to continue infinitely to discover new things mm-hmm. because they're just made up for that novelty element, for you to continually experience something that you didn't think about or know existed or like some some world to inhabit, at least for a few hours, that has that element of wonder that the real world lacks. So depending on how you view the world, is that a very pessimistic conclusion only because is are, are our attempts to bring about like world peace or the utopia kind of fruitless? I think Kierkegaard talked about that of like, if all of our needs were ever met and we never had to suffer or struggle a day in our lives, the first thing, as soon as it happened, the first thing we would do is burn it down because we'd be so bored. 
So it's just interesting to think about because I think you're right. There's some element of, I don't know if it's just human nature, but it's at least in human nature that there is a part of us that enjoys the conflict yeah. or the overcoming of conflict. Yeah, I, I I don't know exactly if it needs to be pessimistic. It certainly I, can I don't be. I don't find it to be, by right. the way. I, I, that's why, like, because it depends how you view the world. I almost find that more exciting or inspiring, but well, or think, just room for growth. Yeah, I think that's the the hopeful part is because even if you you basically solved reality mm-hmm. and every there was peace and everybody understood everything, I feel like you would still, because of creativity, have an infinite supply of that wonder and stories of conflict that Mm -hmm. could stand in for the real thing like even if life is boring then everybody could just devote themselves to art and fiction and there might even be the hope that even if we've discovered as much as we can about the laws of the universe there might not be an upper limit on what we could do with them right so again create real world what the create the literal creativity comes in is that we might understand how things work we might know the tools now so what are the applications the, the applications and the works that we then might be able to make that's good i'll remember that just in my thinking about it too because i actually don't mind the idea as weird as it is that that there is this, just this cycle of you know growth and decay mm, and growth and decay yeah. and that depending on the circumstance any given one is necessary but but that is exciting so yeah that even if we only continue on this trend upward of whatever we term progress that there might be no limit yeah there might not be an upper limit to it and there's the aspect of even if there is a limit maybe it's possible that we'll never reach it mm-hmm. how long will humans really live in the time span of the universe yeah like i guess potentially like in the three body problem series mm-hmm. like until the end of the universe mm-hmm. but more likely probably i don't know a couple hundred thousand until the years sun explodes or whatever. and i have a friend at work who is convinced that we need to be putting everything we can into getting off of this planet <laughs> yeah or at least right develop the capability Musk. to which i suppose if you're planning anything long term on a universal level would probably have to be true because yeah. it is true that at some point for one reason or another this planet won't sustain us forever probably right I don't know what to do with that information, especially because I am quite certain I probably won't be around for it unless we can hibernate and yeah. then wake ourselves up in a million billion years. But I'm a bit split on that idea. I know there's a lot of people who are like, we shouldn't be wasting our money and efforts on space. We should we should worry about our own planet that we live on. And I, know, I, I can Neil, agree with that. Yeah, Neil deGrasse Tyson talked about that. But I, I also think there's an amount of our resources that we can and probably should spend on mm-hmm. space travel. And it's, I think, more than the tiny fraction that we do right now mm-hmm. for a couple of reasons. Because, like, the sun exploding, that's a couple, what, millions or billions of years away. Mm-hmm. We definitely have time. Yeah. Um, but we still, in a sense, do have all our eggs in one basket. Because if, like, there's a solar flare mm-hmm. that is yeah, We could still be screwed. Yeah, like, if yep. all of the species and every other species that we care about live on one planet, that planet could get completely destroyed without mm-hmm. us really having much foreknowledge so it'd be smart to at least have living things on a few different planets even if it's just in the solar system Mm -hmm. so it would make sense to have at least like a city on mars Mm -hmm. and maybe also go to like you know pluto Mm -hmm. so it's further away but i don't think we need to worry about going to a different solar system anytime soon talking about 
wanting to share things with people and it just not having the effect that you want it to. Yeah. I try sometimes to explain the element of the three body problem series that like shook me to my core. And whenever I try, it just doesn't. What part is the dark forest? Yeah. The dark yeah. forest theory. I know. And like I that, that part of the story when for well, we've talked about it, I think on this podcast before, but just that it's like the answer to the Fermi paradox. Of yeah. Either we're the only ones, which seems really unlikely or it's teeming with life. But if that's the case, then where is everyone? And then the answer in that series is that as soon, yeah, spoiler alert, as soon as any civilization becomes advanced enough to make itself known to the universe, even more advanced civilizations immediately destroy them because of these other, what are they called in the book? Like the socio or the, like the sociological universal concepts of that, you know, there are two rules at least that you have to take into account that life will always expand and that resources are finite yeah so every civilization that becomes advanced enough to take those concepts to their conclusion would mean that if we're wanting to stay in the game we have to eliminate as much competition as possible yeah or keep yourself hidden or keep yourself or both i guess yep yeah but anyway the the, the scene in that book when like you kind of figure that out when you know luoji i think was his name sends yeah. that signal years and years before oh and then yeah they check on it years and years later and, and that planet just, is destroyed it's just that star is ex- yeah. Yeah, exploded and then they yeah oh yeah. Uh, yeah alien just exists in the universe looking for signals and as soon as they find one they just send yeah. all their weapons straight at it yeah yeah it's like the universe is teeming with life but it's also incredibly hostile mm-hmm. you know the third book i really did enjoy that whole series but the final book from my idealistic self didn't fulfill on on the promise that i thought was kind of made at the end of the second book because the second book ended i thought in a really sort of optimistic note of after that realization i think it was in the conversation between the woji and one of the trisolarans that wasn't violent oh yeah that said you know those two rules would logically lead you to this strategy but they're not taking into account like this other element of love. And like mm. in the second book, it talks about, but if we could all learn to, <laughs> to love, love each other, yeah. then we could maybe figure out another way. And I was like, yes, but uh, it didn't really go there. <laughs> it didn't really work book. out. <laughs> well, it kind of did. Maybe. Because I, I think um, more spoilers for the third book. They basically get to the end of the universe when people have created their own pocket universes mm-hmm. to live in. And then they realize that there's not enough mass in the universe for the universe to contract again mm-hmm. and for the cycle to continue of universes exploding. That's true. Starting again. So then they send out a signal to all these other pocket universes like, hey, you need to come back and you need to like basically die here mm-hmm. so that the next universe can start. And from what I remember, like that actually people do come back. Did. Yeah. So they to, to allow the next universe yeah. to begin. Yeah. So that's a good point. So maybe they did. I mean, nobody got to survive, but yeah, they but they allowed for the opportunity for yeah. for life, capital L, life to like yeah. have the, have guess, its chance again. Yeah, they chose to be selfless because they could have continued living on forever yeah. in their own universe, but they decided to die. Mm. So yeah. maybe it did tie it in. Yeah, there was a lot of concepts that I thought were really cool in the third book, but I, I, I do agree with you overall. The, the third book, I feel like, was lacking on something that I was hoping for that i I maybe can't even name what it was i was looking for it just didn't hit me as hard as the second book (laughs) yeah the second book was awesome yeah it was a doozy and very eye-opening onto something that might not even be true but is very interesting to think about Mm -mm. the dark forest universe there were so many factors that go into that story that the way that things happen made sense to me but i would try 
putting myself in the position of like a wall facer. Yeah. And like, what would my answer be if all of a sudden we got the, the warning that they were on their way and that they were going to kill us? Like, cause you know, the idea would be that there's uh like, you've got like a kill switch and it's kind of your, or at least it was by the time of a certain part of the story where there was like one person who, yeah. One person who's in charge of, you could send a signal that alerts the rest of the universe to the location of these planet to these aliens who are coming to get you. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a mutual suicide pact. Like, yeah. What's the term for that? Why can't I think of the term? Yeah, with the the USSR and um, mutually assured mutually destruction. destruction. Yeah, yeah. So it's like mutually assured destruction. Like if you aggress on us, we'll make sure we both blow up. Mm-hmm. So then this the wall facer is the person. Yeah, like Luoji, the main character of the second book, has is the task of just basically meditating for the rest of his life and with his finger on the button. Mm-hmm. And then the the aliens are convinced that if they did anything, that he would actually press the button, so they don't mm-hmm. they don't do anything. And then as soon as the new one comes in, as like, as soon as the main character of the third book comes in, they're like she she's not strong enough. Let's just let's just kill all the humans. But then that was an interesting part of the third book was that she continually failed. Yeah. But that in a way that that almost served every, I mean, I, I mean, know. everybody died tragically and horribly That's true. except for her, <laughs> which isn't fair. Yeah. Um, all right. Maybe, it but, wasn't a but she thing. did. Well, no, she didn't, she wasn't even responsible for saving humanity. It was that, that guy, that other one, there, there was this guy who like joined the space force, basically pretending to be, like an optimistic human but really he was just like a fatalist he was like we can't survive so his his secret mission mission was to get a spaceship and just as far into the universe as possible away mm-hmm. from earth to survive mm-hmm. and he was the one that was responsible for allowing humanity to live on for longer than the solar system i think the one thing i liked about and i'm forgetting her name now who is the main character in the third one what was her what name? is her name it's like cheng zi or something like that oh yeah something like that anyway the idea that when it became her turn and as soon as it did she was put in that position i just liked that sequence of when her finger was quote unquote on the button that she had that moment that flashed in her head of like every single life form that ever existed ever on planet earth and all the future ones and that was in her hands yeah and as much as she realized that she probably should press the button because maybe they're screwed anyway like she just couldn't do it and like there was something in her that just like could not condemn the whole earth and everything on it but again that might just be the idealist in me that like that understood that of like oh god i can't be the one if we're gonna die then let it be their choice that kills us i can't be the one to get rid of us yeah but But, that like that really struck me because it like right there it seems like on its face it's a it's like a loving compassionate selfless act mm -hmm. but i think in actuality it's an extremely selfish act it it could or at least it it could be argued that way in consequence anyway maybe Mm -hmm. not in like feeling because she basically doomed everyone to die anyway mm. and faster than they would have died because they I mean, still would have taken time for the right. signal to be you would send out the signal else. like hey this planet exists kill them and then they find out through tracing the signal that your planet also exists so both of you guys die but that's going to take at least according to the earlier planet in the series that got exploded the same way mm-hmm. hundreds of years so then you would basically have the trisolarians the enemy aliens leave you alone because now they have to just abandon ship and then you would give yourself maybe 150 years to try and abandon ship too mm-hmm. instead of like not doing it and allowing your dictators to just do a genocide on you immediately which is what they did mm. and it's not like she could have known that exactly but... no but yeah you're right 
So that is... It's, it's a position that, let's just say, I hope I never find myself. Right. Dif- very difficult. And I think it's a good summation, a sci-fi summation of like the difficulties between deontology and consequentialism, because what you feel is right is often, or at least in some cases, not actually the best course mm-hmm. of action. Or it's like Gandalf says, you know, not even the wise can see all ends. Right. It's that. I mean, seriously. Because, right, I mean, there are certain decisions that maybe do make the most sense in the very short term. Yeah. But then again, there also might be decisions that for people that can see that far ahead make sense, but at the time looks so wrong and so cruel. So it's like, how do you find the balance there? Yeah. One of the other, this is going to be so awful for anybody that hasn't read the series, but you're the one I'm talking to. So whatever, I can appreciate it with yeah. you. But I read love the series. The, it's a very good series. Yeah. The, the idea of the hibernation and that people can kind of, just I like don't even put how, themselves into yeah, stasis and so wake that way up they can come back later. in the future. Yeah, and I loved the the various times when you'd see like how different civilization. Oh yeah, each civil, era like that they their, their attitude about what was going on, like you know what I mean? Yeah, because there were certain times that people felt you know fatalistic, were doomed, and then there were massive leaps in the scientific understanding. So they thought. <laughs> We got this. Yeah. Well, these Trisolarians will kick their ass if they show up. Yeah. And then we saw what happened there. That was one of my favorite parts of the Me third too. book. Me too. Yeah. Humanities in this current, this era, because they basically the premise of the book is they have like 480 years until aliens come and presumably just kill everyone. Yeah. And um, in the third book, uh, the main character, she's just been hibernating in the sci-fi way that you do, putting yourself on ice basically for 100 years. And then she wakes up basically sees how drastically different the next society is where they think that this whole alien thing is a piece of cake and they have like way superior technology and then a single alien ship comes and they think it's like oh it's a surrender or or it's just like a message or something yeah there's this fleet of like i think it's thousands of ships that earth has thousands of ships and the aliens send a single tiny a little drop i think that's what they call it like a little droplet and then they're like getting close to it to inspect what it is. And as soon as they do, it just like zips like half the speed of light basically and destroys all of the ships and like millions of people in, in a matter in the of fleet. minutes. Yeah. Uh, and it just completely destroys humanity's optimism in yeah. like two seconds. Yeah. And it was amazing. <laughs> it was awesome. Yeah. If you ever get the chance, do read that. Yeah. Um, now that we've spoiled it for you, but um, yeah. It's still probably a great book nonetheless. Although I, I'm the kind of person who. Likes to avoid spoilers at all costs. Sorry about that. <laughs> well, I mean, it wasn't spoiled for me. No, that's true. And I did. We did warn before. Yeah. Well, and it is nice that I can put in a timestamp of afterward. I'm talking about. Yeah. There it. you go. Do that. It's nice. It's a nice example of of the opposite being true of what I was saying earlier of explaining to some something to someone and they're not appreciating it. So when you have someone that you can appreciate it with, it's like. Uh. Yeah. So yeah. I think that kind of is related to a topic that I've been thinking about lately about like how in the book she wanted to save lives or she wanted to, she couldn't bring herself to, to doom people. So she did what she thought was the noble act. So there's this thing that I've been thinking about recently here. Maybe I'll preface it with this Peter Singer, Australian moral philosopher. He has this analogy of the shallow pond. It goes like this. You've got nice clothes, nice shoes that you spent good money on. And you're walking down the street and you see a child drowning in a shallow pond. And to that child, like, they are in mortal danger. They will die. They, they're small enough where this, this pond is a serious life-threatening issue to them. To you, you're a tall, full-grown adult. 
you can step in and save them and it'll cost you basically your shoes and maybe your pants you'll ruin your nice clothes and basically to anyone probably to you if you're listening it seems like the obvious easy choice to do is save the child and yeah your shoes get ruined so what if they're really nice shoes it's a couple hundred dollars or whatever but it's like what is that to the cost of saving a, a life and then peter singer's argument is basically that that's the situation that we're in constantly all the time like an example is malaria you can donate one dollar and to, to like whatever the foundation is called that is fighting malaria a dollar basically saves a life of some child in africa from dying of malaria so peter singer's saying basically that we're in that situation all the time minor inconvenience for a first world person to save the life of somebody who doesn't have the resources we do to save themselves and the difference is it's not salient to us like if you see somebody drowning in front of you it seems like an emergency and you're right next to the person it seems like it's it seems more real where if i tell you you know 16 million people died in the past 10 years from malaria in africa or whatever the number is i mean that's just like a number it's just an abstract thing it's hard to actually put faces or people to those lives so it seems like it doesn't matter as much but the argument is that i mean it's obviously a life is a a life and as horrible as this may sound this is my question why is it assumed that saving life is a good thing Mm -hmm. because i think i like peter singer's analogy but if i remember correctly that's basically just a a given an assumption that like you should save the life and that everyone's gut, gut feeling is yes you should save the person's life but i've been thinking about lately like why do we have this assumption that it's automatically a good thing to save someone's life? And I, I, this could go a few ways, but one way in particular that I mean it is, for instance, if you care about like uh, ecological damage, environmental collapse, global warming, or like species extinction, any of those kind of things, the amount of damage that any given human will do in their lifetime is probably significant. And if they were to die or, or not be saved, you're not exactly killing them i think there's a difference between killing somebody not saving them Mm -hmm. then that would be undone so basically the question is like is it good to have more humans exist Mm -hmm. like is it always good to have more humans right and even like just the question is life something that is valuable right it is to us because we're alive i could answer it in a few ways and there's a few questions that's been off from that i know one of the themes that seems to be recurring in my life or my ways of thinking about things is that the universe seems to have different cycles. And as best as we can, maybe the quote-unquote right way of going about things is to get in line with those cycles as much as possible. Mm. Where I'm going with that is that life and death maybe aren't necessarily good in itself, but to the extent that we can figure out... It would be complicated because you'd have to figure out what scenario you mean but it's like maybe we shouldn't (laughs) cause death any more than is necessary but we also don't need to prolong life any more than is necessary if that makes sense so but there's the rub is like so who decides that and yeah but but that's why i think there's something to it because it, it does make it really complicated and usually the more i get into a thing and it starts to seem paradoxical usually i feel like i'm onto something because that almost seems to be where it always goes another thing is too this isn't quite the same but another thought that sprang up in that particular analogy with the walking past a baby in a shallow puddle is that is there some element however cruel it might seem on the face of it which is also what we were talking about that in certain scenarios the best thing that you can do for a person or for life is to like let it figure out for itself how to save itself or how to preserve itself and that's not to say there isn't ever room for compassion and for helping 
but it's like, are you doing a disservice in the long term by fixing someone else's problems or saving something, saving someone from something that they in theory could save themselves from? So there's like another angle of it that I always, not always, I think about when I hear something like that scenario, but I don't know if that answered any of the questions. (laughs) <laughs> those were the thoughts that sprang up yeah well i don't know if there is a good answer to the question i i still feel like i would save the, the child's life mm-hmm. but uh, and that goes to show too like and that would be the instinct right but that's also because that's how we're built that would be that you know for better de- or for worse ontological like yeah categorical imperative kind of thing i know something that i've liked that i've heard and again it can be cruel depending on how you look at it but um when it comes to parenting is that your goal shouldn't be to make your kids safe it should be to make them strong right and of course there comes a period where this is where life gets complicated like if they're if they are still a literal baby you can't just go well fend for yourself like there is an element where you have to take care of them or they will die but there does come a point i don't know if you could pinpoint it to a certain age maybe it differs depending on the person but that it starts becoming more beneficial for you to actually distance yourself and start letting them make mistakes even if it hurts so that way they can start figuring out how to take care of things themselves. And right. maybe you can abstract that out to other problems besides just a scenario between a parent and a child. But I don't know. But that's why life gets complicated because who's who's to say when and where that that line is? Like, when do you know? Okay, now it's time for me to intervene. Now it's time for me not to. Yeah. I guess there is always that element of gambling of, you know, I might be doing the right thing here, but maybe I'm not. And that's part of the fun of life. Yeah. I wonder too, also from the perspective of the first world to the third world uh, issue, and this also sounds horrible to say, and I'm not actually in favor of not saving people's lives, but it's something I think about, is um, third world uh, countries, but by definition of their third, third world countries, then they're less uh, like technologically de- developed, but odds are that they want to become more technologically developed. They want to become first world countries. Uh, in the process of doing so, that'll uh, create a large amount of pollution, environmental destruction. Uh, so then if you're saving a lot of people that live in third world countries, that is going to be compounded destruction later because the industrial revolution that has they, the will, they will have to be, right, has the potential to be. Yeah. First world countries have already done their damage. It's like you can't really undo it as shitty as it is. Unless there, unless there is a way and we just don't know it yet. Sure, you can but carbon sure, recapture or whatever. Th- but theory, yeah. Yeah. So then it's like, um, if you're helping out all these places that are themselves going to have these booms in their economy and double down on the harm that we've done to the environment as a whole, it doesn't seem like a good thing. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of points and hopefully I'll remember them. Because the first one that I thought of, and I should preface this with saying, I don't know if this is true at all, but I just wonder it, is that like, what is the reason that countries that are doing worse off than us, the reason... I think there's one theory that says that the countries that are doing well off do it at the expense of those countries. And maybe there is truth to that. Part of me also wonders on the other side of it, is it because that the worst off countries haven't adopted the values that would make them better off? Again, I don't know enough about what I'm talking about to know if that's true. These are just thoughts. To your point, though, (laughs) is it worth, it's that idea of like a rising tide lifts all boats, except what if it ends up drowning everyone. Right. <laughs> like, so, right. So like, what is, what is the cost of that? Yeah. And again, I don't know if there is a right answer. I mean, there... I think the best answer is the one that's not all that likely to happen is like you help these countries get to the first world stage mm-hmm. directly by skipping steps. You don't have to burn coal. 
mm. you just like have a bunch of countries give them like the current technology but then that re- that relies on the charity and selflessness of first world countries which is not very reliable well it's okay i'm gonna say one thing quick and then i want to get back to that because the other thought i had was we could also reevaluate what it is that we're trying to get to theoretically yeah because a lot of first world countries our standard of living as far as having food shelter and water that's all taken care of yeah depending on where you go though i wouldn't necessarily say that people are happy (laughs) oh yeah in certain places sure and there maybe are other reasons for that too but i also think of the at least the stories i think well i don't know if it's true of every place but people from first world countries will go to these places that people are just dirt poor and yet they're the happiest people they've ever met so like maybe there is something to be said about us needing to reevaluate what it is that we're doing here yeah and what it is that we're trying like maybe as great as skyscrapers and technology and social media and all that can be maybe that isn't what the main goal should be here yeah so there can be that but the other thing i was going to say did you see in the news i think it was was it some un commission said that like we could fix world hunger with like six billion dollars and then Elon Musk was like, I'll front you the money if you show me exactly how and where yeah. the money's going to go. If you remember it, that was a, like a misreporting by like NBC or something where they, the the actual projection wasn't to fix, like to solve okay. it with $6 billion just to like yeah. save a certain amount of lives. And then I think some news station reported as like end world hunger with $6 billion. Well, that's good to know. Because um, that is one thing I appreciated at least. I mean, I'm not... I don't know enough about Elon Musk to judge his character, but that I appreciated about him just because he's in a unique position having the wealth that he does that, you know, he, he said, at least from what I saw that, you know, if there's a way, like, let me know and I, I, I can contribute, but you know, let me know. Cause I think the point that either he or others were making is that it's pretty easy to just throw around numbers and say, well, if only yeah, we had enough money and then it's like, fine, well, here's the money. And then people all of a sudden go, Oh wait, you know, yeah. So again, I don't know enough and I don't want to attribute on either side ill will or anything. I mean, maybe both were coming at it from a good place, but sometimes I think people are talking out of their ass when they say, it's kind of like if you just talk to a neighbor, like, well, if I only had so, so much money, then my life would be so much better. It's like, maybe, but maybe not, you know, I mean, yeah. I think there's more to just having a certain sum of money in your possession that determines the quality of your life. Yeah. So then the world situation is just be a, a bigger example of that. But that's just a personal opinion of mine. It's like that other idea of until you're content with what you have, like more will never be enough. It's not exactly the same, but it's that idea that right. if your values or your mindset is structured a certain way, that if you're always chasing something, if you're always looking for the next thing, I don't know that you ever get there. And then it's also complicated because I don't think that striving for things is bad in itself, but it's again... I don't know, finding that balance or striking a, I don't know, a deal. Right. Yeah. In general, I don't think too favorably of Elon Musk. But the thing you're saying about... Uh, For not having a plan, this is going okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's generally how I like to, to run life. Um, yeah. See where it goes. Yeah. It's just an endless improv. Normally, most of the time when you have plans... Again, it's kind of what we were just saying. It's not bad to have plans. Sometimes it's good to have a general idea of things. But I think the tighter you try to cling to something turning out exactly the way you want it, the more it usually slips through your fingers. Yeah, the more disappointed you end up. Yeah, I make that's yeah, yeah, it's not entirely improv. I 
do make plans um mm. in the short term like the seconds term like of planning out what i'm about to say but I feel like everybody probably does that and then you plan everything you're gonna say not like everything oh but okay do you just say the words the good mo- god the, i have no idea the instant and they come into your head i get mind fucked every time i start going down that road because <laughs> i'm talking to you right now yeah and this is where it starts chipping me up in real time yeah i know what i'm saying but i don't know where it's coming from right <laughs> where is any of the? i have no idea so i know what you mean yeah a lot of the time i mean there's reactions that happen that i just say but a lot of the time i think like through the next sentence before saying it <laughs> yeah um and then i do make plans on the day-to-day usually like in the shower in the morning i'm thinking like okay these are the things i'd like to get done today but where is that coming from is it cataloged like say for instance just the vocabulary that we're using we're using english in the 21st century is that stored somewhere in the physical gray matter in my head or is it just the the other interpretation that i've heard is that you know it's like we're receiving information and and it's just an antenna that in a sense and again maybe that doesn't that doesn't even answer the question though it doesn't it just pushes it down but that's what i'm saying is like that's why no matter what i'm looking at i get high enough or low enough and i just reach a point where i'm like right no i agree with you because it's like the why thing you can ask why and maybe I'll have an answer. You ask again, maybe I'll have an answer. It gets to a point where I don't have an answer, and I don't think anyone can. Yeah, like it's there's an infinite a, regression. Right. There is, there is a point of all things when it goes to, to mystery, to blackness, mm-hmm. to just... Uh, Shrugged That's shoulders. how it is. And in some sense, I think that the sooner or more, or more capable that people are able to accept that, the generally the happier they oh, are. Oh, okay. Either the people that never realize that or the people that go through it and and realize that are usually the happiest. It's everyone struggling in between that is going through all this mess. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Because there are quotes all the time or that I've read about, you know, like, I don't remember who said it. Like, I've never met an intelligent person that, you know, that also is like, is happy or the happy you are. Right. It correlates with how. Yes. Well, that, but, that I think has a few reasons. Yeah. And now there's like several different strands of what I want to say. I was going to say, we can table that. It just came up in my head. No, and it it partially relates to one topic I want to talk about. But anyway, you were about to say something that moment, and oh, I, God, it reminded I... me of a quote. Um, oh. uh, it's something like, all thoughts come from nothing, but the more directly a thought comes from there, the greater it is, like the better oh. the thought is. The more it comes from nothing? Like the more directly it, it, its source is just nothingness. Oh. So like if you, can tra- if you can't trace back a thought to like anything or like an idea... Maybe like your idea is inspired by this thing you saw and this thing, this thing, but eventually it's like just came out of nowhere. And the more directly it comes from that, the more the the, the more powerful or like interesting or that good. Could, the that, idea that, is. that would make sense because it's more novel, right? right. Or it's like yeah. when we go see a movie like The Green Knight, and there's certain parts of it that are just like, yeah, like, what, what the fuck? The... <laughs> but you're right because yeah. it's like it's not anchored to anything, so it's more our senses are more attuned to it because we're trying to figure out what the hell it is. Yeah. Or if, if, you know, there's that realm of consciousness that's projecting into our antenna brains. Then yeah. It's coming directly from that heavenly source or whatever. The fuck. Yeah. But there's one thing we can, we can try to go back to the, okay. this, yeah, this topic. Please. But there's one thing I just want to say about the um, third world country thing. Cause yeah, I think you're right that maybe we could and should probably redirect our aspirations as a species to like what actually is good and what makes us happy because yeah like we can have all these these fancy things and technology from a certain perspective heightened standards of living but does it really do much for us in the end does it make us 
that much happier because you could go to like Bhutan. Mm. Bhutan, last I checked anyway, is the happiest country in the world, mm. but they're also one of the most impoverished. But then impoverished doesn't really mean much. Like if you if you're talking about poverty within a first world country, that probably is b- very bad. That mm-hmm. means like not having enough food to eat or not having campaign paying your rent. But if you're talking about poverty in a country that is entirely from our perspective impoverished, mm-hmm. that's not bad at all. Like mm-hmm. everybody still has enough to eat. People's they're, needs are met. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Just cuz they don't like not having a microwave or internet or a fridge doesn't harm them. Mm-hmm. And they're happier than I am. Mm-hmm. But the thing is that I feel like convincing the world of that would be a difficult task and from a certain perspective could be a bit sinister or seem that way anyway. Because maybe it's due to a certain amount of propaganda that already exists, whether it's like direct, like trying to be propaganda or not. It still is like if you're a third world country, you're probably exposed by one form or another to like the great life that, you know, Americans have, even Mm -hmm. if it's not true just projected in movies and tv shows and whatnot so you probably aspire to that at least in most cases i would assume so then you have this aspiration that i mean you can tell me if i'm wrong it doesn't actually exist but it seems like third world countries are trying to you know ramp things up to become first world countries Mm -hmm. like um even if they're very happy they still feel like they're missing out on something so then you would have to convince them that, no, you don't want what we have. Like, mm-hmm. you, you don't want a refrigerator. You don't want the internet. It's not that great. I love it, but you you shouldn't have it. Mm-hmm. And that kind of seems like fucked up a little bit. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think it's both ways. So I'm so glad you brought that up because this is one of the things that I've continued to go back and forth on or at least just keep thinking about where we might have mentioned this before, but that, that idea that any act in and of itself can't always be described as either good or bad right like the context really matters and then even like the state of mind assuming that there is like a subjective consciousness or whatever involved that even that makes the difference because i think it's exactly what you were just saying of let's pretend that it could be the case that everyone would benefit from a change in perspective of what would make us happy like say for instance like my joke of wanting to live out in the woods just in a hut maybe not even have electricity and just live off the land yeah i think there's a certain lens that you can see that through that that is positive but yeah but to your point but if there are people that have extraordinary wealth that think that can then use that and say huh well this works out for us because we can get more and then convince people that that's actually what's good for them right well what if it is actually what's good for them and could be good for the rich people too for as a matter of fact but you're right so it's like the same thing depending on whose point of view is coming from who's wielding it could be used evilly or done well so that's why it's like this is why when anyone ever talks about anything with certainty i just roll my eyes because i'm like there there are certain things that i like to think are cut and dry but like the more you look at anything it's like it really just does depend (laughs) and what do you do with that well we could sit down and have an adult conversation about it but who the hell is doing that nowadays about anything so i don't know it isn't it's just it's interesting and i mean the logistics of even doing that would be impossible yeah convincing everybody to have a conversation with each other about what they want and impossible task the interesting thing to me also is that we have to share the world with each other. Yeah. And especially in this country, but around the world, I mean, this is what we're finding out is that different people believe that different ways of being are the quote unquote right ways. Well, and how do we decide? I don't know that there is a way to decide like who's 
the most right or who's best. Yeah. What I doesn't mean that it's been executed completely perfectly, but what I used to like imagining was neat about the country we live in is that people were free to kind of run those experiments and that we didn't kill each other when when we disagreed. Yeah. Sometimes it still does happen. But you know, in other places around the world, literally if you live in a country where the ideas that you believe are counter to the prevailing ones like they will execute you right at least we didn't or don't have that here for now so that's i don't know and again i don't know like what the right answer is to any of this but when you're living in a world and we want to we we want to live we since we want to live we want to assume that other people want to but we have different ways of conceptualizing what that should look like what do we do about it (laughs) Especially if those ways are at cross purposes, sometimes they are like there are just things that people, the things that they, the, the ways they want to go are just almost opposed. So it's like, yeah. what do we do? What do we do with that information? I don't know. I don't think it helps to just scream at each other and yell and, and hurt each other, but I don't know. So it's like, do we, do we try it at least temporarily? Cause I think it could only be solved temporarily. Do we, do we use geography to our advantage? And have certain people that want to live a certain way go physically to a different location and then likewise for a different group. At some point, though, we're going to have to cross paths. So it's like that's we might have said this before, but it's like determining like where the values that we have fall into like the hierarchy or the pyramid. And assuming that we could even find one that we agree on the most, then maybe we could figure out the rest. But I don't know. It's what we're kind of all figuring out whether we know it or not. I mean, that is what we're doing when we live in a society is trying to figure out how to get along and depending on what we want to do, how to get there. Because, I mean, more often than not, I think people generally want the same things. It is in the execution of getting them, though, that usually we differ. Yeah. I mean, sometimes people can just want different things, but those were words. (laughs) No, yeah. it's uh... (laughs) Those are the questions that I ask, and it's like, Here's the only thing that I can tell myself at the end of the day, and I don't know that it'll work forever, but it's like you you do take it day by day, and I guess you try to be as honest with yourself and those around you that you can be in any given scenario. And it's like we were seeing earlier, I don't know that there's a great way to measure the success of that in the long term. We We get the sense that we can gauge things in the short term based on how other people are reacting to what we're doing, but it does become harder when you don't know what you're doing, how it will affect things later on. So then is that the role of like a leader then is to try to be the one that looks further down the line and then assuming that you're trying to aim for good results later, but it's going to cause a lot of crap in the, in the short term is the skill of a leader really in being able to communicate. Yes, it's going to suck, but here's where we're going. (laughs) Or is that just like one skill? Because a lot of people dislike a person that is charismatic, that can get up and say whatever they want to hear right now. Anybody really can do that. So then is it like, do you know that you're really following someone when they acknowledge? Well, I don't know. I mean, it probably depends on the scenario, but what else do we do? (laughs) Yeah, it's probably one of the skills of a leader anyway, is to convince people of things that they didn't want previously, but are actually good for them. Mm Mm-hmm. This is where it gets warped, though, too, because that almost is kind of describing what we were saying with rich people convincing that poor people that you should be happy with where you're at. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, then then does there have to be some level of 
good faith isn't I mean, even think, enough but like you know what i'm saying like i think like especially when you're doing that there has to be a level of um relatability in the leader like you can't mm-hmm. be living in your ivory tower telling exactly. people, like you have to seriously i think yeah have the same lifestyle as the people you're talking to probably. that's why a lot of people have become disenfranchised with washington like regardless of what side you're on i think or yeah. just leader you know the elite whatever the elite is in general just because like it's easy for all of you guys to say i mean look, yeah. look at the lives you're in and a lot of the laws that people make they're exempt from following anyway right so it's like Again, regardless of what side you're on, I totally understand the frustration. And I don't know if it's encouraging that young people are kind of getting fed up with all this. And that almost always seems to be the role of any young, the young generation being like, it's bullshit. But a lot of times maybe it is, or at least it's the instinct of wanting to look at it and possibly make improvements, I think is healthy. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's probably one of the reasons people like Bernie Sanders so much. <laughs> that like, old crotchety man. If I, I was just like on Reddit or something, there was a picture of Bernie Sanders' like living room, and there was just like a, a a chair with a pile of clothes on it, and then it's just like we all can relate to that that chair. Yeah, but <laughs> but isn't he kind of full of shit though too? Because he's like a millionaire, isn't he? Yeah, he's technically got like okay, he's like two million dollars. So that's why. There. And again, I'm not. I, here's the other thing. I'm not critical necessarily. Depends. And people just. Well, people being wealthy, like, like I have another friend that is very critical that like rich people should not need to be however rich and like that we should take their money and give it away. And I guess I just personally don't have that instinct in me. I I get what people mean because I think there is, um, there may, there might be something going on with people that, that have those thoughts too. And I can't say that I know because I'm not them, but that it's, it's not as much about wanting to help the poor as it is just being really having a real evil feeling towards people that are more successful than them. Like, um, envious. Yeah. Like a coveting thing. Yeah. If like, I, I, and again, I can't prove it. I just wonder if there's more of that going on. And I think George Orwell talked about that too. in, in one of his books of like all of the, the new young socialists that were coming up, it wasn't really that they wanted to help the poor is that they just wanted to tear down the rich. And I mean, there's a psychological argument to be made there, but yeah, there's definitely some of that. Um, but then I also think it, like it's the the context too it depends on the the rich person like what they're doing with their money and mm-hmm. how they yeah they act and and right and there's the thing where here's where i know that i have my own conflicts of i might agree with someone that says well who really needs 15 super yachts like yeah. i agree with that like i don't know that anybody needs that but i just don't have that like urge to then be like so we need to take away his money and just i don't, I don't know but here's the thing at the end of the day with, with all of this, I have to come back to, okay, so what do I do about it? It's interesting to think about it. I love talking about it. I like hearing what other people have to say about it. But at some point, it comes back down to me because I'm all I have control over. And that's only half the time. There's a lot of time. I don't even know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? So what do we do? Well, I don't know. I guess I just try to live as consistently with what I tell myself or my values <laughs> as much as I can and hope that that extends to other people if it helps or if not whatever but i don't know Hmm. or do we have like a duty to to each other (laughs) to other people i mean is there like an element of i know there's a quote that's like if uh, if you have something to say silence is a lie so Hmm. if you know if there's something that you believe to be true and you're keeping it to yourself like is there an element of sin quote unquote yeah or do we all just need to 
shut up and go about our own business, mind our own business. Yeah, I don't know about that. Um, because I experience that sometimes. Because I don't know, it's not like you're always right, or what you have to say is always even beneficial. So if you have something to say and you say nothing, it's is it really worse to do that? Like the rule, um, if you've got nothing nice to say, don't say anything mm. at all. Like it's, that seems reasonable. Like if you, if you, the first thing that comes to my mind is to call you a fat <laughs> fuck, <laughs> I probably would be better off Yeah. for everybody not saying it. Maybe, yeah. Although you can make the argument that I should say it because then you can know that we shouldn't be friends that, that if was like a, that I was really feel real. that way, <laughs> you know, or something like that. I'm 500 pounds, by the way, <laughs> for those people that are listening. Yeah. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> but then it also, I don't know, maybe removes the possibility of me changing my mind later. If I choose to not say that, mm-hmm. and then a couple of years down the line, I realize that I have some sort of pent up anger mm-hmm. about you being a fat fuck. So it would have been better just to have gotten it out than... Yeah, or or like maybe I changed my mind mm. on the process or on the thought and then like saying it just ruins a relationship that mm. if I would have waited a little, little bit longer, yeah. I would have oh, gotten past. I, it's one of those love-hate things that I, well, I guess I more love it, like thinking back on hmm. of just those moments in your life. It really could be any for all we know where it's like, oh, had I just done something oh, just differently right. or had I not said something or had I said something like yeah. Would the complete trajectory of your life been different just based on yeah. a moment that I mean, sometimes you feel like you're at those crossroads moments, but other times we might we we could face them every day for all we know. We do, I think. Yeah. Every single social interaction I think is yeah. a hid secretly a test. Yeah. Maybe even secretly to both people yeah. who, are, who are talking. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So what could I say right now that would cause you to go home and just change your whole life? <laughs> That's yeah. my challenge. No, I, I think about that, like, conversation. I think that is essentially <laughs> like the, the the truest art. Like if you were to have a cheat code for the universe, that's what it would essentially be to to know the right answer to any mm. th- to know the thing to say to any person. Do you, have you heard of the concept Wu Wei? Oh, um, yeah, that's the Taoism. Yep, like the effortless action. Right. Yeah. Which we may have. I don't know that we've ever talked about it in a recorded way. But sure. I think we've talked about it that, you know, I think a lot of people misread that as like inaction. Yeah. And I think that actually used to be how it was defined. But I liked that when I saw it phrased effortless action. And I think it gets to this idea right. that 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 is like the master way. Yes. Of, it's not doing nothing. It's not necessarily doing everything, but it is it is the it's the serenity prayer thing that I've told you about. It's yeah. like it's literally the wisdom that in Oh, in every given scenario of the universe, there is potentially like the the best thing that you right. can do at any given time. And it's the knowing that. Right. That in some cases it might not be doing anything. In other cases, there is a time to act, but it's not either one of those things that's important. It's knowing when and how to apply it. Yeah. And it yeah. is having that intuition to be able yeah. to just like being do it automatically. so in flow, which is what I think the Taoists were talking about, yeah. that, that you're just in it. So you would know. Yeah, so that's the secret. I don't know what to do about it. Or how, how, how to achieve putting that. Because putting it into practice can be a hell of a thing. But but to the extent that we can. And that was what I was kind of getting at earlier too when, about the the not preserving life longer than we need to and not causing more death and destruction than we need to. It's like there are elements of the universe that just exist and we have to take those into account. 
but like let's get in the flow of them rather than trying to manipulate, manipulate them. them one yeah. way or the other that could be wrong but i just love reading about that idea i love reading about things that there aren't words for <laughs> that it's like i don't know how to how to describe it because it just is a thing yeah Wu Wei is one of them. <laughs> or the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what you were just saying about saying the right thing or whatnot. I I've, have kind of dreamed about that for a long time. I always imagined like a great ability to have would be to like see a meter over people's heads mm. and then have like a, I don't know how much they like what you're saying, like mm. dial and you can see it move as you speak. So you could like, or like maybe you see like, if it's like a video game, you've got your text bubbles that you can yeah. choose from. You can see like some options of what to say about their head and like you see which one's going to be the best path. Yes. You go like, okay, I'll say that one. Yeah. Do you ever have moments like where you feel it in real time that what you just like what you just said either like was the best thing or was like not the right thing to say? Like you feel like that's... I have. Have you? That social test happened in I that have. moment. I yeah. have. No, there, I have. There are definitely both ways, by the way. Yeah. I've experienced that recently. Yeah, like, me too, actually. Like within the past week. Just at work. Yeah, yeah. I had a moment. Do you want to share yours? Well, no, let's hear yours. So when I was at work, I work for the county register of deeds office, which is um, for anyone that cares, but it kind of pertains to the story, where anything that has to do with real estate or property in the county has to kind of come through our office. So there was a woman whose husband just died and she's in the process of removing his interest from the deed. And there's a way that you can do it through our office without having to go to court, which costs more money and takes so much more time. Anyway, there's a form that they have to fill out and it's not the hardest form, but if you're not, if you've never done it before, it wouldn't be exactly the most intuitive thing to do. So this woman, poor woman, has come to our office like three or four times and there's always been something wrong with it. So we've had to send her away. And like every time she's just on the verge of tears. And I hadn't dealt with her except for like the fourth time, I think. And when she was here, I mean, she was like crying and she was just so upset and angry and frustrated. And there was such a part of me that wanted to say like the platitudes of like, I am so sorry for your loss. I understand your frustration. But there was a voice that was like, don't. Because if you do, I just, it, it's what we should say, right? But I, yeah. it's like you could just get that sense that that would just, and in her defense, if I was in that scenario and I heard that from someone, I might just fly off the handle too. Because it's like, there's certain things that <laughs> are the nice thing to say, but when someone says them to you in the in the wrong moment, it just, it's not what you want to hear. Yeah. So there was just that voice that was like, don't. And then she just, you know, had her moment and got emotional and then left and, I guess I didn't know until after because then she came back that it was the right thing to do. But I think it was the right thing to do because then when she came back and I helped her again, she actually said like, you know, I just wanted to thank you all here. Like, I understand that what I've been going through is not your fault. And, you know, I've just been having a really rough time. She started telling me about all this other stuff that was going on in her life. And I just listened. Like, I just let her have the moment. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm so glad I didn't say anything yesterday because of that gone wrong this probably wouldn't have happened so small example nobody's life was shattered there but like yeah it's just that the real time moment of like like listening to that instinct of like don't just let this happen yeah it's always really cool when it happens the right way i know yeah because <laughs> normally oh i've been in plenty of scenarios where it didn't yeah right or scenarios where it, what even is worse maybe not worse i don't know bad in a different way is when maybe somebody asks you a question and you feel as if your answer 
Uh, <laughs> is like this yeah. is uh, I'm gonna blow their mind. Or, or, or like this is like this is like a test for like oh if if you'll continue to like me or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and my I've go-to. asked those questions before too. By the way, what's the type of question that that would be? Can you think of one? Or oh, they might have to be context specific. Yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to think like. I'll try. I'll see if I can think of one, but keep going. But yeah, my, my go-to usually when I'm asked that type of question is to not answer it. Mm. Um, Wise, <laughs> smart. If you can pick up on that. But that's usually not. That's not that favorable either to people to to evade. Just, just not completely. answer. <laughs> well, sometimes yeah, just don't say anything. Yeah. Or evade it through yeah. speech. Um, but that's usually not that satisfying. Answer but it, with it is. Question. It is better than answering it in the way that would uh, yeah. make them like I don't know hate me if that's. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, my experience vaguely, I guess, um, I was giving somebody a compliment and I could tell that the combination of words that I used mm. and the delivery, like gave the maximum possible effect. Mm. Just hit all the right notes. Yeah. It, I, oh, there is something to be said for that. I don't, nothing's coming to mind where I gave one, but I remember I was with someone and it was just a consequence of them knowing me for long enough that like they said all the right things and it oh, was yeah. like it was just it's that thing of like when you felt like you're known like you're heard oh, yeah. or that you know what i mean like someone just knows who you are because like anybody can say like a nice thing about you but there's certain parts of yourself that maybe you hold like in higher esteem that when people notice or point out it's yeah. like oh you see me <laughs> like <laughs> yeah huh that gets at something that i, I wonder about myself because I've always, not always, but most of the time, I feel a slight discomfort when people give me compl- compliments. Me too. Oh, it's a, yeah. Probably says something about our own self-esteem. It, sure. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay, this is what I'm wondering. What you just said kind of sparked this idea. This is a little aside now before I say it, but I often feel as if I'm not sure if what I'm saying is true, mm. like about what I think or what I feel, because like, it seems like a possibility, but I don't actually know for certain if that is like what's actually the thing that's the process that's happening in my mind. Mm. But anyway, this is this is something that I thought of, could be true, but maybe the reason that I often feel discomfort about compliments when people give them to me is kind of like what you just said. Maybe like I feel weird about it because I feel like maybe they mean it, but they don't actually know me mm. or like know who I am so that I don't know if this compliment is deserved or like if you know, they, they mm-hmm. really know what they're saying. Yeah. Even if they're being genuine. Like the only thing they're complimenting is whatever conceptualization they have of me. Right. But it's not who you feel you are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've had that before. And I don't know if that necessarily has to be a self-esteem problem, but just no. like a, yeah, there's like, there's, there's, there, there's more or less to me than you're making it out to, to mm-hmm. seem like there is mm-hmm. or like that you're noticing so that. And is that because they just are or there's a misreading between the two or is it just that the limitations of language don't always allow for maybe accurate conveying of information because i feel that all the time where i'm like i wish that humans had some sort of extra sense where the thing that i'm feeling i could just relay to you yeah (laughs) like rather than try to like give you an impression of it i wish that you could just feel it because i don't know i guess that's where there's value in people being good artists or good yeah you can good convey that through music like vectors of that are good carriers of that because certain people can do it better than others but but it's like oh if it i mean i do think that sometimes when you're physically with someone it's easier to get i yeah. mean maybe sometimes you don't even have to be with them but i think it's generally easier 
that definitely like, you know what I'll, I, that would make sense because what just popped into my head was i was listening to someone talk about how much of our experience of life is chemical mm-hmm. and we don't even realize it that like we're given off pheromones and stuff all the time and that the emotions that we feel that we we might later go why did i all of a sudden just get like angry or really happy it's just yeah. because like we like picked up on some chemical that was in the air yeah so that could be attributed to that too where it's like i might not have the words to tell someone i love them but like i'm giving off like whatever yeah. whatever chemical composition oh no i've, I've felt that like it acts acts differently around people and you're not even sure why but yeah it's, it's i was reading or listening to someone talk about like the animal is it capybara capybara yeah. that it's like that where it's this animal that gives off these pheromones that just make everything around it really happy so even animals that should be predators to it like just get in a really good mood <laughs> that's a great trait which to is have. i know so i was like oh, there's another superpower that would be interesting just, just to... everyone around you is super happy all the time yeah like it's just always in a good mood and yeah that'd be great wouldn't it yeah it'd be cool another thing that i was thinking of along the lines of the compliment giving and my discomfort with them is it could be a disingenuousness in myself that might be there maybe unintentionally or whatnot or uh, amounts of um, privacy or um, personality that is hidden or something like mm. that where like maybe to a person i'm not displaying my true self or maybe i'm not mm. lying to you but i'm not i'm not like displaying all of my personality to you mm-hmm. so when you compliment me on my personality i feel like it's not a really mm. doesn't actually apply to me mm-hmm. because this is only you're only seeing like whatever this aspect but i feel like that probably goes for all people well yeah i mean can you imagine like none of us even really know ourselves that well yeah i mean some of us maybe more than others but but right the idea that trying to figure out other people all that we're really getting most of the time is just very surface level impressions yeah i mean i've known you for a long time so i mean i have a feeling that i know you better but like at the same time there also is part of you that is very alien probably right yeah. or at least, you only know that you only know the me that's around you yeah or at least is just not right like i don't necessarily want to say alien but you know what i mean you yeah. know what i mean see there's an example where it's like <laughs> i know you enough to think that you know what i mean without having to say it what i've found in any of those scenarios that helps is just being honest yeah <laughs> which is funny because you know you're told as a kid like honesty is the best policy and you kind of roll your eyes when you figure out how useful lying can be <laughs> but in the long run and across most games, I think telling the truth actually does work. Yeah. And it's amazing that if you do it right, how refreshing that is in any given scenario where one trait that I am glad that I get from, I think, my dad's side of the family is like, if there's an elephant in the room, you can bet like we'll be the first ones that go, hey, there's an elephant over there. And there is a right and wrong way to do it. But I think if you do it right, there's just this like, there's this power that not, it doesn't give you, but it just like, it like gives everyone permission to kind of like let those parts of themselves maybe come out or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. Or there's just, there's something to just saying, well, we've said it already saying the right thing at the right time. And if you can pick up on that more power to you. And like so many times the right thing might seem like the wrong thing, but if you have the courage to say it, I think the payoff can be pretty spectacular yeah but you have to be careful because sometimes if you say the wrong thing at the wrong time it can really bite you in the ass 
a lot of the time my problem like because i agree that honesty is generally the best policy except for the case of destructive honesty one of my problems like i was just kind of saying is i feel like a lot of the time i don't exactly know like what i'm feeling Mm. or why at least you're honest about that (laughs) so if somebody asks me like my honest answer would be like i don't know and that's not a satisfying answer and that isn't believable either but you're honest in saying that right yeah so so i don't know like i can't a lot of the time give people what they want that satisfactory answer because Mm. i'm not sure why i'm feeling the way i'm feeling myself do you acknowledge that do you say that i mean usually i tell people i don't know but i just because i think that if, you, if, you, if it comes with that then maybe it might still not be completely satisfactory to the person but they might appreciate that more than just like well i don't know if you say oh, if like, i explained to them like that, i yeah. don't know but it's not because i don't want to answer you it's because i literally just i i don't know yeah. how i'm feeling i suppose people could always still think you're lying but yeah how long have we been talking oh good question i don't know that this needs to be a certain amount of time or not but yeah, I've had a few shorter episodes uh, recently, so I'm fine having a longer one. Okay. I know several of my uh, listeners have told me to do shorter ones. Oh, really? They don't um, like the longer form ones? I'm wondering for an audience that like looks for podcasts or things to listen to, like what it is that they're hoping to get out of it. Yeah. The reason I like listening to podcasts generally is the content, sure, but it's almost like what we were saying earlier, like there's almost an art to conversation having. Hmm. And it's neat when you can just experience that going well it helps if the content is interesting yeah but it's also just like you said like when two people come together i think there's a quote it might be Jung's that it's like a chemical reaction that if if there's any reaction at all the two people come away new things right and i think that can be true for people listening so not that i talk with the i god now i'm going to be self-conscious of it like thinking about oh someone's going to be listening to this right but when I'm listening to podcasts, that's what I get out of them because it is like kind of way earlier. Why do people go to movies and watch stuff that isn't happening? Why are people just sitting down and listening to two people that they don't know have a conversation about whatever? Maybe they'll hear something that they find interesting, but it's, I don't know. I think it's also just something about listening to a conversation. Between yeah. People. Listening to a conversation so people can get something out of it. But I don't know. I, I don't know that I'm anyway. Yeah. So this is going to not make people happy, but um, there's some things I've been thinking about along the same lines of whether saving lives is good. I've been having, not just currently, but especially currently, thoughts about things that most people assume to be unethical and questioning if they actually are. Mm. So one thing I've been thinking about lately is incest. Mm. People have this automatic assumption that it's bad. Mm. And it certainly can can produce um, children with birth defects. Mm-hmm. But children aside, say you're having sex with protection and given consent, why is incest an issue? Mm. You know? Maybe do people have an answer? They usually say because it's gross. Oh, see, but that might just be evidence that like our biology is working. <laughs> Only yeah. because if we didn't have protection and or there wasn't consent, it could result in bad things happening as far as our genes are concerned. Yeah, that's true. So the default reaction of, oh, it's gross, is probably maybe just evidence of that. Yeah. I guess I don't necessarily have an answer as to like why it would be wrong. Because I think we tie up a lot of our feelings of morality with the feeling of disgust. Oh, yeah. 
But I don't know if that actually makes any sense. I feel like that we should have logical reasons for things being ethical can, or not. I can see it both ways because I can see them right getting definitely tied up and muddled because I was I haven't had this conversation, but I wanted to with another friend of mine just about even just like sexuality and how we're defining it nowadays because I feel the same way that so much of our moral stance on it could be rethought just because it gets tied into so much other stuff that there isn't necessarily, or it's not that there isn't a reason for that, but that we could maybe do with just examining it further. Yeah. But anyway, um, so I don't know. I mean, I, from a, from a survival standpoint, I get why certain moral decisions are tied up with that physical feeling of disgust, but to the extent that we let it dictate our behavior obviously can be, can be misplaced or could be rethought maybe. I mean, I think it, it. You have all brothers, so I don't know what you're getting at here. But well, no. See, just my, my interest in talking about incest doesn't reflect any interest in yeah. partaking in incest. Yeah, isn't that interesting? And how refreshing is it to say that? That well, yeah. anyway, keep going. Yeah, there's a quote by Aristotle that's something like the mark of an educated mind is being able to entertain and a thought without accepting, accepting it, it. Yeah. Um, which I appreciate mm -hmm. and feel. I was going to bring that one up earlier. And this is also going to sound bad if if you don't follow me through with what I'm saying here. I feel like incest can have the same functions the same way in terms of our moral feelings as homosexuality does. Mm. Because both cases, at least if you ask somebody years ago before majority accepts like homosexual relations, mm. they, they would have a feeling of gross, like they have a feeling of disgust about it. And that's the same feeling that you would ask somebody now about incest. Mm -hmm. It's the feeling of gross. And then you ask somebody, well, why is it bad? They can't really provide any explanations except for the fact that they think it's gross, which mm -hmm. does serve an evolutionary purpose. Because if you have like the majority of the population is gay, then you're not going to have very many kids and then mm -hmm. your population is going to die out. Mm -hmm. If the majority of your population is engaging in incest, then you're going to have a lot of birth defects and the, po and the population right. is going to die out. Mm -hmm. If you remove those factors because you can now and you really kind of always could through like condoms or uh, sterilization or whatnot or adoption that you can remove those those evolutionary aspects of this moral thinking entirely. And then I think there's no reason left. There might not be a reason, but is there a way that we can just by pure logical argument override the feeling that we have with, you know what I'm saying? No, that's, the th that's what I'm saying. I think we did that with homosexuality. Like, D yeah, like people, I think people accept that and no longer think it's gross. When, if you asked the average guy a hundred years ago, mm -hmm. he would probably be very disapproving of it. Maybe. Yeah. I'm wondering, I mean, and I don't know, this is me just thinking out loud now, but if it isn't necessarily that people don't think it's gross anymore, but it's just that they've come to the conclusion that it's not something that they need to spend their time like condemning other people for sure yeah. that it's just like, you know what? it's other people's lives and they can live theirs and I can live mine. And you know, it's not hurting me where I live. So couldn't you say the same thing about incest? So sure. Yeah. Yeah. But that's what I mean. So it's like, I, I can appreciate the fact that just acknowledging that something might not be wrong, might not then automatically make someone all of a sudden feel great about it. Sure. Yeah. But, but it doesn't mean that it's not worth examining, but it's weird. Cause like with, with homosexuality, for example, like I hope that, I always try to think how to start this conversation because what I just said about people living their lives as long as it's not hurting anyone is generally how I feel about life and living and with yeah. other people. So I don't want this to sound insulting or anything, but <laughs> it does like make me laugh when I just think about the fact that as humans, what we do with each other to like show affection, 
Because it is true that biologically speaking, is, like the purpose of sex is to reproduce. Put our dicks in other people's holes? Well, it's to reproduce, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the purpose of sex. So the fact that, to our point way earlier, I think that things get muddled is like, so I can totally understand a scenario where two people, regardless of whatever biological gender they are, have affection for each other. And maybe it's stronger because of whatever, their personalities mesh. But then that people... I think have automatically taken that to mean that, that oh, love has to involve has sex. to involve sex. And I'm like that to me, I've just never felt that way. Yeah. Where it's like, I might have a really strong affection for someone, but that does not automatically come with, you know, wanting to engage with their asshole. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it's like, I feel like that isn't necessarily something that's talked about much. Right. So I, I empathize with, especially young people now because there's like a thousand different gender identities that it's like i think i might not agree with the iterations that that's taking but i get it because i think it's speaking to what like we're just saying or what maybe yeah. what i'm just saying now is that they have these feelings and because we've i don't know told ourselves that they have to fit into this one thing it's like well wait a minute well what if i really like joe over here but it doesn't mean that you know I, what i'm saying i love all penises yeah yeah so yeah like love and sex are disconnectable yes and or i think that they are and it, it's like what we were just saying earlier acknowledging that does not all of a sudden mean that it just becomes easier but right like i don't know i could probably get <laughs> I, i'll maybe i'll just leave it at that because so far it sounded pretty professional <laughs> or okay because like there are just certain aspects of it or like the fact of like whether it's a gay couple or a lesbian couple like just objectively speaking the fact that we as humans just like bump up against each other yeah. vigorously and then because like it i guess it feels good and it releases endorphins which sure. it does so like i get it but just that like you were saying it doesn't mean that that has to be there right and that in my opinion it would be okay if it's not i wonder how many same-sex couples don't more than you think have sex. because i've looked it up because i'm like there there i can't be the only one that has thought about this and there are there are people that are together they're a couple they're married but they don't engage at least in certain yeah acts let's say and to me i would even wonder like what a religious person's perspective on that would be because i am totally fine with whatever people want to do i don't care but i would even think from like a religious standpoint that that shouldn't even be considered wrong then especially yeah i don't think it living should be with a wrong person anyway. of same sex and and loving them, loving them and wanting to yeah. be with them who cares? Yeah. So I don't know. And th see, that, that's, I mean, as much as I'm sure, I'm sure most audience members d do not agree with me that incest <laughs> is, is, is okay. Is okay. <laughs> that's the, basically the point I'm trying to make is that yeah. like sex and morality are disconnectable as can well. Be, can be analyzed. And, and yeah. Yeah. And we, I feel like are disconnecting it from more and more things. Mm. And I feel like I, I haven't found a logical reason why incest would not be one of the next things. Mm. If there are two consenting, I mean, that, that'd be the difficult part. Like hard to know when it's consenting, especially if it's like involving a parent, then it's, mm. there's this power dynamic that's un uncomfortable and hard to distinguish. But if it's like, I don't know, two cousins, which used to be much more common mm. or two siblings, is, depending on Cersei and, and Jamie Lannister yeah, want to fuck each say. other. They'll be happy to hear like, what we're talking about. Yeah. You could definitely say Cersei and Jamie are not psychologically sound. Mm. Um, Right, and that the reasons that they're doing it 
are to the extent that we can determine are not healthy sure like there's a they're depending on each other for yeah they're using that as as something that yeah but that type of thing exists within normal normal relationships relationships. exactly exactly so right so but so they are consenting adults so like if you watch game of thrones and you think them having sex is gross why Mm mm-hmm I mean, they have kids that are literally monsters. Well, not literally monsters, but monster humans. One of them is. Yeah, one of them the is. The other two turned out The other two okay. were great, actually. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's just um, a roll of the dice. Yes. Yeah. Things and, didn't turn out for them still, but that and wasn't That really is a theme fault. in Game of Thrones of incest causes insanity in Targaryens and that's in true. the Lannisters. And that's that's what I'm saying. If, you, if you're having incestuous relationships without having kids, without fucking up humanity's gene pool, basically, mm-hmm. I don't see why that's an issue. Maybe to my point, though, is that I wonder if siblings could still love each other well obviously what i'm about to say is true because most people do it but like they wouldn't need that though sure is that there are ways to express love and like let's yeah, say that you railing each other yes and like let's say you have a sibling that like you care about way more than anyone else or even more than other siblings and there's this is why i think it gets complicated because there's let's say that you as a human want to have a way to express that yeah our default might be sex right. because that's just what has been there or what is there so it's like oh if there was another way that we maybe could because i am sympathetic to to why people have negative feelings about it especially tying into the biological reasons as to why that is yeah but anyway um my next stop on this bus of <laughs> where are we uh, going <laughs> discussing discussing uncomfortable ethical topics sure those are the best conversations to have i'm sorry listener but i i want to question these things um necrophilia is the uh. next one I think there is the aspect that would make it obviously immoral if you're spreading diseases from fucking dead people. Obviously, that's bad. Mm. But let's say, once again, just like incest, you're taking, you're using protection. You're not spreading diseases. Why is having sex with a corpse considered automatically immoral? Why? Because who's it hurting? Right. The corpse so, is not even a person. And I maybe I could have brought this up with the last scenario, but it came up with this one. Is that I think, right, like in theory, maybe there isn't. But I'm wondering... And this is where I have to catch like my own biological biases because I guess I have an aver- or I would have an aversion to it. Well, yeah, you definitely I can, I can automatically still, do. You just kind of think, yeah, I can still acknowledge that maybe in theory there isn't anything quote unquote immoral with it. But I wonder if well, we, we might have said it already. Is there something else going on with the person that's still alive that is wrong? That that's how they're like they have a psychological it. issue. Yeah. That- so is it, so like would be would 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 allowing for that to be moral and and letting people do that be a bad thing for society be a bad thing if if it's coming at the price of them not dealing with something else that's that's being ignored or not you know what I'm saying sure yeah so, it could it could be an unhealthy but way to... hypothetically we're just speaking hypothetically here if they weren't if they literally were just born with a desire to have sex with dead people would it be better to set up an avenue for them to do that safely then have them try to f- try to uh, create dead people well right to seek that out in other ways where yeah. you know or or like i think i might have brought this up to you before in a conversation like one of my favorite interviews with serial killers was one with jeffrey dahmer and he acknowledged and we don't know if it's true but it'd be interesting to think about that he said that he feels 
if there would have been someone for him to talk to about the thoughts that were going on in, in his head, he doesn't think that it would ever have actually gotten that bad. But because he felt like he didn't have someone to to talk to about the feelings that he had inside, yeah. it caused him to then go out and act them out in the real world. And I'm and again, I can't prove that. It's just coming from his mouth. But if it's true, right, that that could be an argument for well, I don't know, or at least not making it so reprehensible just to even talk about. Yeah. That you know what I'm saying? Because it's like... Yeah, that, that's the issue I'm facing right yeah. here. Not the fact that I want to, but the fact this is a taboo topic that yeah. it's hard to even talk about. Right. To be sure, I share audience. I share your, I'm sure, same revulsion to the idea of having sex with a corpse. I'm just wondering why that would go hand in hand with morality. and I don't think it should. <laughs> if you ever die, or let's say you become famous. Yeah. <laughs> and like they, they can play one thing that you've said throughout your whole life <laughs> at your funeral i hope they say that yeah at my funeral they're like okay line up yeah. fuck him <laughs> he said it you was heard okay. what he said but but to be honest um <laughs> you do have permission to fuck my corpse wow you're giving it here yes you don't have my permission to fuck mine <laughs> <laughs> why not i don't know but i I think I'll probably have other arrangements made. Oh, yeah, that's true. You'll, you'll have to, like, <laughs> steal it or something, because um, I'm sure it won't just be... Available? Although, well, maybe by then it will be. Who knows? Maybe I could schedule it as, like, an art piece. Oh, okay. My corpse can go to a museum, and people can line up and fuck it. Oh, where? As a, you know, demonstration. <laughs> yeah. Because the, the reason I don't think it matters is because, yeah, there is no person there anymore. There's, like, it's not even about, like... Because obviously this is different for somebody's in a coma or somebody's unconscious. Like then they will come back and they will, you know. Or they could anyway. Or they could and they'll realize what you've done to them and you didn't have consent. With a corpse, I don't think there's a need for consent because there is no person. It's like, to me, it's the same as fucking a rock <laughs> or a fridge <laughs> would, or your couch. Um, would Would you, to cover bases or to make it the most acceptable, would you say that you should have the person's consent before they die that their body can be used for those purposes. Oh, yeah, I mean, that'd probably be best, sure. I think it would be best because I know like in some cultures what happens to the remains afterward is like a big deal. And, yeah. you know, one could argue whether or not any of that is true or not. But like <laughs> I could imagine that certain tribal right. cultures would see like getting... You might be upsetting or offending the people, the loved ones of the of the corpse. Yeah, yeah. Are there any other taboo subjects that you're thinking about besides incest and necrophilia? And whether or not people should be saved. Um, oh, yeah. No, it's just those three. Those are pretty good ones, mostly. though. But, oh, and um, to, to prevent anyone from thinking, well, doesn't should, what about bestiality? Um, that, I do feel, is uh, firmly unethical because you cannot, even, even if... That your dog does want to fuck you. You can't <laughs> confirm that it wants to fuck you. Like you, you don't have vocal consent, and that is a living thing that will experience it, unlike a corpse. So no, I, I, I'm. So you draw the line there. Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, unless it's a dead animal. I mean, then that's necrophilia again. <laughs> oh God. Here's the thing that I appreciate about this, though, and we've kind of already said it, is that I wish more people would at least be open to having the conversation. Right. Even if seems, someone's even if someone's opinion was no, not under any circumstance. People automatically write it off without willing to broach the subject. Yeah, like or they'll just say like you need to leave or you know. What makes me sad about that too is that I guess I can't assume this of everyone else, but we all kind of have thoughts at least that border on those things all the time, right? I would think, unless maybe we're just unique there. Maybe we are. Maybe, but, yeah, we just have fucked but, up thoughts. Maybe. But 
isn't it better or i don't know i would think it would be better to at least have the opportunity or the space to just right. just just talk, talk about, about it because i just i think any well we i think we've talked about this before with whatever but it, if you repress something that doesn't yes. make, that does not make it better yeah. whatever it is i don't care like just telling someone nope you can't talk about it just lock it away and don't ever think about it again well guess what that means that that's all that they're probably going to be thinking about and right. they'll do it in a way that's probably more dangerous than if we would have just if you would have had the conversation yeah i yeah i was thinking about this subject in terms of like an extension of our last podcast episode because we talked about that like the repression breeds mm-hmm. obsession kind of thing because yeah if you make an idea so taboo then the people who are interested in it mm-hmm. through unluck i guess if you just happen to be born wanting to fuck your sister or you know a corpse or, yeah. or whatever a dead animal whatever it is and society tells you that's like not even thinkable mm-hmm. you're probably not it's not going to help you you're probably going to be worse off than you would if society allowed you to at least comfortably and safely express your have the desire to do it yes yeah so then i wonder I th- i've talked about this last time too but i still wonder the same kind of idea if you had like a facility where people who sign up can send their bodies like donating to science except donating to lust i guess mm-hmm. where you can sign up send your body after you're dead for a few days before it like decomposes too badly people can fuck it or after it decomposes if that's what people are into um would that be better or worse for society because on one hand you could say better because now all the people who have this repressed inclination to fuck people can act out on it in a way that doesn't harm anyone because otherwise they might be inclined to create corpses in order to fuck corpses and that's where like jeffrey dahmer specifically came to mind yeah then on the other hand someone might say well if you do that you're actually kind of encouraging that and you might create you might prompt more people to want to fuck corpses than would have initially existed Mm -hmm. and that might be true too but here's the other thing and i said it before is that that's why I wonder with any of these, maybe it's both. Is there something else going on? Because like, let's say all of a sudden, a lot of people are like, hmm, Every I might, signs I might up. want yeah. to give that a try. What's that saying about us that we're interested in that? You know, like yeah. maybe it is worth exploring. I don't know if it means that that should be how we're exploring it. But it actually wouldn't surprise me if people did sign up with that, considering how much in Western culture we try to avoid death at all costs. Yeah. That if we finally allow... Yeah, there might be an influx afterward. Yeah, just I think people would be, I don't know, even subconsciously relieved that like there is an acknowledgement of death and that it doesn't have to be something that is only avoided and only ever... Right. Like, never thought upon or... You know what I'm saying? So... Yeah, yeah, I, I, that is something I wish that we had more of in our society was not this. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's something to be said for celebrating youth and vitality and all that. But when it comes at the expense of like trying to ignore and pretending that death does not exist. Yeah. Well, we're, we see what kind of crap that can cause. I think talking about necrophilia is probably one of the most taboo topics because it deals with like the two most repressed things in yes. society is sex death and death. And, yes. <laughs> and that's like, I think that's extremely fucked up. Like, yeah. I feel like it would probably be a better thing for that, what I just described to exist, because mm-hmm. then you would move away from a society that is focused on forgetting about death and m- making sure sex isn't discussed. Mm-hmm. Like, well, it, there's this weird duality with how sex is discussed. Like, it's like advertised and ex- exploited and displayed at the same time. It's like... And death can be don't too, talk about right? It. Because right. like, I mean, we, we have movies and things that are just over the top gory. Yeah. And- and we have all these, you know, every, like half the TV shows that exist are like, you know, crime scene investigation yeah. shows. Yeah. And then like 
basically three quarters of all video games the main like gameplay loop is just murder mm-hmm. um, yes <laughs> i'd love to know the percentage of that by the way yeah it's, it's a lot most games what you do is just kill things yeah perhaps not humans but you're still just still killing stuff so i think maybe people be fucking corpses more than they currently are i mean i'm sure they would because most people probably aren't doing it even if they want to but i think at the same time you would you would re- remove these like mental roadblocks in people's minds about things they can and, and can't that's what i wonder is that like maybe we'd go through a period where people would but then maybe my hope if i have a hope of a scenario like that <laughs> would be that maybe we would then circle around to a place where we're not anymore but yeah. that we'd we have we would have gone through some sort of like bottleneck period of where it's like okay we can all acknowledge here dead bodies we have these feelings about death and sex and hey look sometimes they converge yeah but now we can we don't have to be so right tiptoe around everything we don't have to i think about this in the same way basically that i think about prostitution and drugs Mm. because both those things at least in america everywhere except for like las vegas are illegal Mm. um and i think that creates an unhealthy market and psychology around them where they're like more alluring because of the fact the fact they're illegal more dangerous because of the fact that they're not supervised or Mm. what's the word regulated or anything like that um and then i think it seems maybe plausible that if you just kind of did a wide um, legalization of drugs, that you might have an influx of people doing them because now there's no legal ramifications. Mm-hmm. But I think after t- over time, at least this is what happened in Portugal, it's been very effective so far. They basically legalized all drugs, and now they, their addiction numbers are way down. Yeah. Um, and then I think the same thing with like prostitution. If you made it legal, maybe like a lot of more pe- a lot more people would engage in it because they don't have to fear anything. Mm-hmm. And then I think over time it would subside. And after that subsiding, it would be much more healthy than it ever was mm-hmm. because there's no like taboo culture. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, I again, the wise can't see all ends. My immediate thinking about it right now is that I would prefer to live in a society like that or in a world like that. I think. Well, we're seeing, I guess, the one that we're living in now. So that's what we have to compare it to. But if we did that, I still wouldn't fault people for thinking that those things were wrong. But I'd prefer them to come to the conclusion that they're wrong having access to them versus just telling them that they're wrong, yeah. if that makes sense. So it's it's like practical experience versus dogma. I feel the same way about religion, too. The good parts and the bad is that if you're going to if you're going to come to any sort of feeling about existence come to it yourself, right. like have that experience yourself. Don't just believe it or not believe it based on what some other person told you. Yeah, You go out and find that out. That's just where I come from. So I guess it ties into that. I have something to say on that too, but I did just think of one more uh, taboo mm. ethical issue. And once again, with the other things that I'm talking about, most people, you have a gut reaction that kind of rules your thoughts on its morality. At least in my experience, the people that I talk to, that's how it goes. Mm. It's just, it's gross. It's bad. It, it's it's bad. Why is it bad? It's bad. Like, that's the conversation. Is cannibalism. Mm. Once again, aside from the possibility of spreading disease, so like proper preparation and all that, and aside from the fact that I'm not saying killing people is okay. Mm. But, but once they're but, dead. But what is the problem with eating a person after they've died through other means that are weren't you're doing, you know? Mm. Especially considering how much waste we mm. cause with our deaths. Yeah. These cemeteries that are just filled with land that could have been put to other uses. Well, and people's like tissue that could have been too. Yeah. One way or the other. I mean, in this case, cannibalism would be eating it, but I even, think, even I think, fed to other animals could be. Right. Sure. I think my caveat would be the same thing as the other one where 
the best case scenario would be to get the person's permission that that was okay. Yeah. <laughs> Only because I, well, for the same reasons, just that if, if they or their family or their culture would see it as disrespectful or, right. Or would cause, if not harm, like, a, I don't know, a, some yeah. sort of negative emotional feeling that it would be best if, if it would be agreed upon beforehand. But yeah, I mean, there's another one where, Strictly speaking, once the person has died, yeah, yeah, it's just I, I, tissue that that that's there that will decay and return to the earth anyway. Right. Yeah, the consent before you die I, that would be effective and at least should be in helping not cause problems with the people who are still alive. Because I feel like if I sign up to be eaten after I die, I don't think my mom has any right to be upset mm. about the person eating. Like maybe she can be upset that it's happening, but I don't think she she should feel like angry towards the person who ate me because like I signed up for it. Like, Interesting. It's my choice, not my mom's You know, choice. and here's a good example of maybe what we've been talking it's almost about not my where, choice, but... where like the, the logic of that makes sense to me, but there's still a like feeling, an emotional of, part where yeah. like, oh, I would totally understand a mom still being mad about that. One thing I wonder if people are hesitant towards all of this is because if they, like I'm trying to think how to present this if we start making certain things like that legal, like where then do we draw the line? Like if, right, yeah. if it, then does it lead to somewhere else that, oh, all of a sudden then this is okay. And then we can just go around killing people or, you know, and I'm I don't not know, saying I... that that would happen, but I just wonder if subconsciously or put it this way, if people have other desires that maybe are labeled as evil or, or darker. Yeah. And that if, you know, if we start eliminating some of those boundaries, if they're almost even subconsciously scared that they might start acting them out. But yeah. Yeah. I guess the, that's the, the one, the one worry is that you would create more behavior that you don't want to have. Although if the behavior itself isn't unethical, then why does it matter if more people do it? There's a question to be had. You know, like if you come to the conclusion that having sex with a corpse or eating a human after they're dead is not ethically wrong, then why does it matter if more people are doing that? Mm. Um, but then I think the thing, the line that stops the slippery slope from get, getting out of hand is the consent thing. Like mm. That's there's, a, there's a clear demarcation between eating somebody's dead body and killing them. Mm. For their dead body to then eat. Yeah, because in the one case, you know, yeah, they're not going to say, yeah, kill me. Mm. Um, what if they did even if they did i don't know if you can trust them um see that's where it gets kind of murky you you know i feel like you'd have to ask them repeatedly for like two years to make sure that they're not just going through a phase of like suicidal tendency and then i think you could say the same thing about like somebody who signs up to be eaten after they're dead but i don't think that matters as much if they're just going through a phase because they're fucking dead Mm -hmm. who cares like i mean they can't care they literally cannot care what happens to their body um somebody else as far as we know yeah I mean, I don't know. Is it even that big of a deal if you have a soul and you watch from the heavens as somebody fucks your corpse? Do you still, do you care? Like, I don't know. I, I don't see how you would. Unless you, Not if, if you gave your permission. No, <laughs> unless, the, unless the thought is that like you still feel, you're still inhabiting and experiencing from your body even after mm-hmm. death. Like, unless that's the case, then I don't see why it matters. I don't know if this is quite within the same vein, but it just occurred to me that, you know, when bodies are decomposing, they're being eaten by creatures. Yeah, lots of bacteria. Yeah. The ones that live inside you start to eat you. So that reminds me of Midnight Mass when they were talking about what happens when you die. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Midnight Mass is a good show that we both just watched recently. I just rewatched it, so it's fresh. Oh, you rewatched it again? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was very good. I'll yeah. Yeah, I already talked to you about that. But well, I think maybe maybe we, we end the we podcast soon. It. But yes. Are I, there any other last I, things? I do have say? one more topic I want to talk about. It might take another ten minutes or so. Okay. It's not that related, but there were a few moments in the conversation where I wanted to bring it up. But now I'll now I'll bring it up. Another thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately is what people even mean by the term or when they use the word supernatural mm-hmm. and how I feel like it doesn't actually mean anything. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't refer to anything real. My understanding of it, but might not be how other people use it, is it could just be synonymous with unknown. Yeah. that I See, that it mm-hmm. makes sense. But then when I think about that, it's like if it's just unknown, then literally everyone believes in the supernatural. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean much to, to if that is the definition mm-hmm. because saying like i wonder if it's a way and i don't know but if it's a way for people to distinguish how would you say it there's a a concept or there are concepts within different cultures that there are different realms of reality yeah so is it a way to differentiate them and the way that maybe we're thinking of it is that if all of those things are real even if they're in separate realms right it's not really supernatural because it's still part of the big picture. That's the way I'm Whereas thinking Whereas they it. maybe just see it as it's separate than the one maybe that we're in. So they, right. they want to, they want to call it a different name maybe. Yeah. Like that, that, that sounds reasonable too. Like if you think there's a realm where the ghosts live yeah. or where the spirit ancestors live, yep. um, you could call that supernatural. But if it exists and if it works along predictable rules, which it must, if you claim to know that it exists, like, or, and I'm even thinking, even if, well, even if something is seems unpredictable to us, we might have talked about this before or tried because here's another concept where words fail me. I almost don't know that there's any such thing as like complete chaos Unpre- yeah. or unpredictability just because what would that even mean? If there was such a thing that was completely unpredictable, you couldn't even know that it existed because yeah. like there would be no way to yeah. verify its existence because yeah. it would never appear the same way twice. Yeah. Or or even if it only ever popped up once, like there was still that that thing though. Yeah. So, you know what I mean? So I'm trying to think how I'm I'm not putting it quite right the way that I think you know what I mean. But... Yeah, I think I do. Okay. But but yeah, like basically if if there's an alternate dimension or another world where the the fairies live, mm-hmm. if that's what you believe, I don't see why you would consider that as being supernatural. Because mm-hmm. surely it's it still exists within this universe, or even if there's a, you know universe beyond, it still is following rules of nature. It's still the realm of something that we can experience. Yeah. So I think maybe like with us, we maybe just see things more holistically and include that all in our idea of what right. the universe is. Whereas it maybe I mean it might not be, but maybe. To give the benefit of the doubt, it is just like a difference in terminology for, I don't know, a way that they see things. Yeah. If that makes sense. Because like I get why people call things different names, but in my view of whatever reality is, I see it as sort of all encompassing. Like I, I want to try to fit everything into one picture if I can. Yeah. Are there different complexities depending on which, maybe there's different layers, maybe there's different parts. Sure. But it's all kind of got to fit yeah. together somehow. Because it's all let's say some rules. Because let's say I die and then go there. Well, that's a process, and they're then connected. That, yeah. You know that we feel you're not leaving nature behind. You're yeah, still in it. It's just going to a different, theoretically, a different part or yeah, like a different dimension or a different something, different state of being, whatever that is. Kind of like with, I mean, it's not exactly the same because it's all physical, but like using the the metaphor of like water being in different states, like it's always right. water. 
Yeah. It doesn't become supernatural as soon as it becomes vapor. It's different and it operates. You know what I'm saying? Like it has different laws. Yeah. So I don't know. And then like even in the case of God, who I guess people would think of as like a supernatural entity. Well, that, that I would think be, gets complicated. Well, and I think if God did exist, God would be the most natural entity. Mm-hmm. God oh, would, yeah. Like it is. That's why I, my personal, I get this is not everyone. My definition of God almost is nature. Like, right. Is like the, it would have to be. Like it's it's the totality of nature. And then in my INFP idealistic sense, I see everything as sort of a piece of God. So like you're a piece, I'm a piece. Right. The table is even, you know, yeah, and it's pantheistic. like, it's, it's, yeah, like it's, yeah, that, that would be it. It's just that it's all part of it, just in different forms and manifestations. I suppose where the question would be, is that, is there some sort of super consciousness that is aware of all of it at once oh, yeah. there? I have no idea. I couldn't tell you <laughs> maybe. And but, then if there is, it's still within yes. the domain of what is natural. Yeah. So I don't think there's any getting around mm-hmm. that. Yeah. I mean, I, I get if it's, yeah, somebody wants to use it as different layers of reality. But but I, then they should, well, not that they would even know, but then it would be nice if you ever have a conversation with someone to like maybe just bring that up like or ask that question of like, is this how you, how you mean it? Yeah. When I talk about this with people who <laughs> do believe the things, it feels like I'm we're speaking different languages because okay. usually it's like, they're like, no, you're not even allowing yourself to, to think about the possibilities of mm-hmm. like what I mean. It's like well tell me what you do mean and then just yeah. you know yeah and that and that i think i can't say for sure but it's in some sense it's just people talking past each other right. and it's not you talking past them it's just that because this happens a lot too we, i think we said it before of just the message isn't clicking yeah so it's like i might be saying something and for whatever reason it might not even be your fault it might be but it isn't connecting with them. Like yeah. we, you, you haven't unlocked the magic sequence of yeah, words, the right words to, to get say. the thing that you're trying to say. Or, because I've encountered this too, it is that cognitive dissonance thing where someone might hear the words you're saying and like deep down maybe know what you're saying, yeah. but has built their identity on the fact of them ignoring or not taking into account what you're saying. Yeah. So instead of integrating it, they have to expel it because if they did integrate it, that might mean that some really important part of their personality would dissolve right so i think that happens a lot (laughs) but and i get it but i still don't think it's necessarily the best thing a person should be doing for themselves or can be doing for themselves because wouldn't it i don't know and this is just me but wouldn't as a human that's experiencing whatever this thing is that's existence wouldn't you want to create a picture that is the most all-encompassing and in that sense the most accurate like wouldn't you want to be able to take as much into account as you could if that makes sense you know like if you live your life and you really believe that there's this one piece that is just absolutely true but it's at odds with like 20 other things in that picture yeah wouldn't you i know i can only speak for myself i would want to say maybe there's something here i need to recalibrate because if if I'm wanting to believe this is true, but there's all this other data or there's all this other input that's coming in that suggests that maybe I'm wrong here. Like, wouldn't you want to yeah, have, it, a, have a picture that encompasses everything? Like, that's just how I'm built, I guess. Obviously, from you know what we've seen, brains don't actually work this way, but it seems yeah. like it would be easier because it, like you've got this concept, this idea, like God is usually what it is in my experience that causes so many other contradictions and problems that like you would think there's more problems this idea is causing mm-hmm. 
And if you just realize, then you have to think like all these people, these scientists, all these people, like these findings, they're all lies or traps laid by Satan or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. All these things are false just so you can secure this one idea. Mm -hmm. It seems like it'd be easier just to accept the other way around. Which is funny to me too, only because, and I can only speak for myself, that doesn't, I think maybe this is where people get hung up. That doesn't mean that you have to get rid of the idea of God. As a whole. It just, it just might mean that your idea of God has to evolve, right. <laughs> has to change. Yeah. You have to think about it differently. You have to abandon your young earth hypothesis. Which maybe would be like good news if you presented it the right way for some people. Because I think where many get hung up with God is because they're, they're limiting it. They're yeah. limiting him. Even using that language, they're limiting yeah. that idea of what God can be. Because if it's true that people believe that God is this all-powerful, all-present, all, that's great. But then you have to have responsibility for what that means and yeah. for what that also means in the context of what else we observe about this reality that we're in. So I get why people come up with the stories and the ideas about life that they do because it, it serves them somewhere. But like I said, I know at least for me that if if I was honest and I was coming across something that called into question some other belief that I had, I would want to try to find a way to figure out how to mesh to, them. Yeah, to like to marry them together. Yeah. It's like it doesn't mean that you're all wrong. It does, I mean it might mean that, but it doesn't have to mean yeah. that. So like better try to to reconcile them. It's not the, it's that like thesis and antithesis, 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 but then the synthesis. So it's like the synthesis is what yeah. you want, or what I try to do in almost anything. Cause it just, it seems that that's the yin and the yang, the Taoist, it all comes full circle. It's like, okay, we're experiencing life. We're getting all this input. We're trying to make a picture of it. Okay. So what do we do? And then we, we, where we can go wrong is we start telling specific stories about how things go. And where people run into trouble is when there's a new piece of information that messes up your story. It doesn't mean you have to scrap the whole story, but maybe it just means the story has to change. Yeah. With like the supernatural thing, uh, usually when I tell people, talk to them about it and they are of the supernatural believing bent, um, they usually call me like a reductionist or mm. um, too too much of a like materialist, materialist, like scientific yeah. materialist um, or like too much like only think about the universe in terms of the physical but then i'm thinking like if there is some experience to be had beyond the physical that is still nature mm. and then further one one idea of um what supernatural is that seems to be sometimes what people are suggesting is like the ununderstandable not just the unknown but like mm. the un things that the, can't be known the unknowable yeah the but unknown then, unknowns right but, but then i think like if that is what you mean by the supernatural you can't claim to know that it exists because it is by definition, not knowable. Like if it, if there's an element of the universe that is not understandable to you, I, you aren't allowed to claim its existence because mm -hmm. what does that even mean? If you know what it means, then it becomes understandable. Mm -hmm. I can understand claiming that knowledge that like that as a phenomena yeah. might exist, but right. But then to make inferences about anything, like what it does. It, yeah. Could, like, you, like you said, you couldn't. Yeah, like if, if the phenomenon of ghosts is not a predictable or understandable phenomenon, then you can't really claim that they exist. It's conceivable, which is weird. I'm trying to think if this as a sentence even makes sense. I, I can understand the possibility that there are unknown things that we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Why it's so difficult is because we wouldn't have any idea what that would be. Right. Yeah. 
but I can conceive of that possibility. But that's about it. So then it, it must be like if somebody's claiming that type of thing exists, that they think they have like secret knowledge that I don't have. Mm-hmm. Even if that's the case, the term supernatural still does not apply. At least the, the way I, the way it is it, as a dictionary word, like mm-hmm. defies the laws of nature. Yeah. That all that means to me is that we just haven't understood the laws of nature. Right. Well That's enough. the thing. If you yeah. find like, for instance, if you find with concrete proof that the resurrection of Jesus happened, that doesn't necessarily mean that God exists. That just means we need to rework what is possible in this world. Mm-mm. Like, or God does exist, but it could be that, but it doesn't automatically refer to that. Yeah. It yeah. doesn't. It's not like we won. Mm-hmm. fuck you atheists it's like well, that's, that's, why, that's one that's of the possibilities think, that's why it makes me sad that there is like this division between the two and i totally understand why because on the face of it it seems like there are very different it's like we said earlier with people that have very just different views of the world i just wish that that there was a way that people could come together and try to to try to find more common ground because i'm trying to think like with that example i mean Let's say, for instance, the body of the man Jesus actually did raise, rise, rise from the dead. Yeah. Right. From everything that we see in today's day and age, like that does not happen. Right. So for for the majority of the lived experience of most people, that would be an anomaly. Right. Does that mean that it didn't happen? Not necessarily. Right. But if that happened we would want to know what happened and how. Yes. And if we could figure out what happened and how, I guess maybe where I agree or maybe it's saying it a different way, that doesn't necessarily then verify the rest of the baggage that comes with the story exactly. of any religion anywhere. Right. It might mean that that happened. Maybe it was a miracle. Maybe miracle slash anomaly. Maybe that means there is a, a, a supernatural God that's dealing with stuff. But right, but that doesn't then automatically mean that everything else that yeah. comes along with that story is true. It it seems just profoundly illogical to me because like the central most important claim of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And even if that were true, it doesn't automatically mean that God exists. It could very well mean that what we don't know is that humans are capable of spontaneous resurrection. And if that's true, by the way, it would be really interesting to know because he wasn't even the only one that ever rose from the dead. Yeah, well, I mean, he, I mean he there's plenty of people, people that's in, in, in the Bible alone. Yeah, because that, to me, is a fascinating idea, and I think Jordan Peterson has talked about this, that maybe there is something that humans have access to or in in potential could have access to that would allow for that phenomena to occur. And the reason it's rare is because so few people ever actually get to that sure. level. Yeah. You know, if you're playing a video game, maybe you have to get to level 100 and yeah. all of us are just at level 20. You reach that nirvana state. Right. So again, if that is true, amazing. And who, would, yeah. who wouldn't want to figure that out and discover all that comes with that when you reach that level? Maybe there's a whole new level of existence that you experience that we don't even know about. Yeah. Cool. I think anybody, regardless of whether you're religious or not, would be open to that. But right. It's until we investigate that further... Let's just be cautious about what it is that we're saying that that means. Yeah. You know, especially if it's justifying forcing certain beliefs on people that, you know, because I get that way. Even even if there was a completely benign religion that really only caused good things, I would still disagree with it if it was forced on people. Yeah. Like that, there's that in my hierarchy of values is just that's where it's at. It's like, I don't think people should be coerced or f- be made to follow or believe anything that they don't choose themselves. You were talking about that a little bit earlier, like 20 minutes ago, um, how people should 
ideally choose for themselves how they mm. how they react to things and what they what they think is good but then i wonder can is that even a, a doable task like do people even in ideal conditions are they capable of coming to their own conclusions <laughs> or are we caught in too much of a spider web between all human interaction that every single thought you have is you could say it's influenced influenced mm-hmm. by every other thought everybody else has so that you don't really have any thoughts that you could really really call your own your mm-hmm. opinion of something can't ever i mean hypothetically possibly can't ever be called something that you have sole ownership over mm-hmm. and whether these unflu- influences are like direct and seen like your friends are telling you a thing is great so you think it's great or unseen influences just that you absorb from the culture you live in and all of the interactions you have on a daily basis your thoughts that you think you create yourself are not really created by you and that could very well be and just like anything else this could all be a simulation for all i know or just a dream so i guess it's just operating as best as i can which doesn't solve it doesn't answer the question yeah but it's usually one of the things that people who delve deeply into the world of meditation or psychedelics find is that there is no thing as you Mm. it does not exist i think there is and there isn't which is what's complicated yeah because i agree and i mean the deeper you go into meditating you do lose that sense of yourself but at the same time we have an experience of it yeah and that's not to say that just because you have an experience of it that that means that it's necessarily real although what is any of life except experiencing it even as logical even as reasonable as you can get you're still arriving at it by some experiential way so it's the best that we, <laughs> that we can do. Yeah. So there's the answers. We have no idea. We like we said us. earlier, you just shrug the shoulders. Yeah. But but I think we said it in one of our previous conversations is that as weird as it is, it seems like you can decide what to do with that information. So you can either cause that or that can either cause you to despair or you can look at it as like, wow, what a laugh. You know, like what a yeah. what a weird scenario. So tragedy versus comedy i guess i try to look at it as a comedy and it seemed to have served me well so far yeah what you're saying just there reminded me of calculus how it's like you can have these concepts that don't make any sense and aren't even calculable but you can still use them to create finite answers like you can have the concept of infinity or an infinite series a bunch of terms adding up forever and despite the fact that they add up forever you can still find whether they converge onto a finite number or not so it's like you can have these ideas that you don't know the answer to but you can still act upon them and somehow that makes sense Mm -hmm. works for me (laughs) (laughs) well thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast you have any parting words uh no thank you i mean i don't know if it would be better saved till after it stopped recording but uh speaking to earlier about not being able to convey emotion accurately. Like I very much appreciate these. So thank you.